Hello, you ready for our Brittany Murphy show? <laughs> yes, Brittany Murphy, well. Wow. <laughs> so, uh... <laughs> <laughs> you laugh, but I forgot all about her, and then one day I saw this movie with, uh... Eight Mile? You would actually like... Which one? Bushwick. With Dave Bautista. It was made about a year or two ago. Well, I don't think she's dead for a couple of years now. Could be. Oh, she passed? Yeah, oh. she died of, like, uh, bulimia, anorexia. No, she was she OD'd, but she was getting anorexic or something. She was thinking of issues. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. So this movie, the reason why I said you will like it, it was a, as if a fascist Republican regime had so many supporters, they decided to take over the country. How appropriate. <laughs> and they were parachuting in, and suddenly they were just killing people, you know, like crazy. And, of course, they're attacking Brooklyn as well as other places. And, and Dave Bautista, underplaying as a depressed psychotic because his, uh, his kid or his family died in an unrelated thing, and he's living like a homeless guy. And he, he comes to her aid because her boyfriend gets killed in a, in a train station, 7th Avenue, Brooklyn, of all places, which I've been to. And they try to – he's reluctant to get involved. But he, he decides to help her out, do a good thing, and, and they try to get out. There's no way to get out because these fuckers are everywhere. And when they find these guys, they're like, I don't know what I'm doing. Everybody else was doing it, and I just went along, and I really regret it now. Does that sound familiar? Just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you should look up Bushwick. I was pushing it right after I saw it. And I tell everybody, you got to see it. And everybody's thinking, oh, big day. But now people are looking at him differently because he's done some, some decent work, you know. The Guardians movies? <laughs> no, he's done other things. I know. I know. He's not a bad actor, considering. No, actually, they, he's and in Brittany a new... Murphy's actually was actually rather good. I've seen her in a couple of things. But yeah, yeah I, I just looked her up, and she died in 2009. And, you know, they give different sources for what, what the actual cause of death was, but bottom line was multiple drug intoxication, among other things. So I think that was the right Brittany. Now you got me thinking. I thought it was Brittany Murphy. I know. We're not even covering Brittany Murphy, people. And this is, <laughs> our, this is one of our weird digressions here. We do it all the time. <laughs> Check this out. Yeah, because we said it was a year or two ago. I'm like, did she come back from the dead? <laughs> oh, Brittany Snow. The other Oh, Brittany one. Snow. Okay. All right. Very different. <laughs> Very different, but it's about what I said. It's about it's excellent film. It's like the movie that nobody saw that everybody should see. But she looks oh, like okay. Brittany Murphy. She's got a Brittany in there. Anyway, this is not about Brittany <laughs> Murphy. This is she about was a cute girl. It's too bad. <laughs> but yes, this is about another Murphy. <laughs> this is about another Murphy. I'm going to get into things that people may not like about Eddie, but it's okay. I like. Yeah. I love Eddie. Inside the gold mine, you're such a guy to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Eddie Murphy, believe it or not, on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. Good evening and welcome to the third episode of the twelfth season of Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So, yes, tonight, actually this, believe it or not, especially by the time you hear this, will be the first of a three-show tribute, if you will, to Black History Month. 
And believe okay. it or not, this was not planned this way. There, there's nothing in either of our minds that said, you know what, let's do a Black History Month thing. But as it so happened, uh, you had suggested at one point Eddie Murphy, which surprised me, and that gave some thoughts. Like, you know what, maybe we should do that. And you had a long time been stumping for Wesley Snipes, who's also somebody I like. In the meantime, while we were talking about this stuff, especially when you brought Eddie Murphy, I was like, well, you know, why don't we do Whoopi Goldberg? Because my wife just started, I forget why, maybe it's because we saw Sister Act again or something, but like bringing home Whoopi Goldberg movies, and we started watching them, and we had gotten through a bunch of them, like I think it was eight or nine of the damn things, and I was saying to you, you know, if you want to do that, I've just seen a whole shitload of them, so, you know, it'd be fun for me and easy, you know, it might be worth doing, because she's had a similar career, believe it or not, to Eddie Murphy when it comes to films and comedy and whatever else. And so we wound up, that's what we're doing. Better yet, again, not planned, we wound up doing all three of them in a row. So, uh, you know, nonetheless, it will be, by the time you hear this, I don't know if it's actually going to hit in February, but this will be our de facto Black History Month. So uh, all you, you know, MAGA types, if you're even bothering to listen to us at this point, you're going to hate this month. But, uh, yeah, we're giving tribute to three people that we... Oh, yeah, we can always repeat the shows, too, put them back out. <laughs> you know, we've done shows to uh, women that we've loved in the past. You know, we just recently did uh, Jackie Bissett. We've done That's Charlotte cool. Rampling. We did Bridget Bardot. We've done uh, Pam Greer, for that matter. It's not like the first time we've covered a, a black actor or whatever. And of course, we did a black exploitation show way back when. But this is probably, not the first time, but it's been... Uh, kind of low in our catalog of people that we've covered and genres that we've covered. We haven't really tackled this. So, new stuff for us, I guess. <laughs> Unless you count the Pam Greer and the Black Exploitation show. And that's the way it worked out. So, much to both of our surprise, I think, I was just thinking about the other night, I'm like, Jesus, we've got a three in a row. It's like, yeah, I guess by the time it hits, it'll be Black History Month. So, there you go, folks. Well, yeah, and, and one of the reasons why I was pushing for Eddie Murphy was, I understand, you couldn't get to everything. Yeah, I did a lot. But he's really good. Eddie... I'm sure this is probably in your notes somewhere. You know, he's a guy who idolized uh, Richard Pryor. And, you know, if it wasn't for Richard Pryor, there'd be no Eddie Murphy. And if it wasn't for Richard Pryor, there'd be a lot of people like Dave Chappelle. You know, you know Richard Pryor paved the way for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But that being said, what I just wanted to say before we started was Eddie Murphy's so good in so many things. And and even in the, in the drama stuff. And mm-hmm. there were issues that we both will have with some films because he he got into this thing where he got super sick same thing happened with richard Pryor post post his uh let's call it accident (laughs) the free basing incident yes (laughs) but the same thing happened with richard right before the years before leading up to his passing where he was playing just ridiculous jokey roles and but these were very these kind of parts were very uh popular but juvenile Popular, but you were now, but they <laughs> surely blew up his bank account. You know? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's definitely and, for a you know, cash He's right? like, well, why should I try harder? <laughs> you know? And then, getting paid more in a bigger audience for doing shit. <laughs> but, then, you know, but then he would come around. And occasionally do something good, yeah. Yeah, like Dream Girls. I don't know if he got around to that. That, that was just phenomenal performance. And everybody thought he was going to get the best supporting actor Long overdue for him for other pictures, um, because it should have been, but it didn't happen. And then Dolomite, everybody, he was getting awards for Dolomite on the road to the Oscars, and then the Oscars decide, nah, it's Eddie Murphy, let's not even nominate him, fuck him. <laughs> and, you know, 
everybody was pissed. Everybody yeah. was pissed because, yes, I get it. It was a strange movie. It, it was a dramedy. You know, it wasn't exactly a comedy. It was a biofilm done a little different style. But he was phenomenal again. But he's not stupid. So he figures, I'm on the upswing. Let's do Beverly Kill Hills yeah, Beverly Hills Cop, like, what is it, four? And four. Also, four he just coming. redid Coming to America, too, uh, which is, or Coming to America, if you will. Yeah, Coming to America, good. too. Coming to America, which, yeah, which is pretty good. But here's the thing, though. Uh, I forgot the director that's worked on last of Eddie's couple movies. Uh, he did Black Snake Moan, Craig, somebody or other. And him and Eddie seem to have a really good rapport, director, actor thing. But he's not doing Beverly Hills Cop. And although I assumed he was, it's some other new guy. But the thing that bugs me out, they're bringing the entire supporting cast back from the first three pictures. Just like coming to America, yeah. Yeah, including <laughs> Judge Reinhold, including the guy from uh, whatever his name, Yahtzee, that, you know, from that stupid show. Um, <laughs> uh, Mark Lynn Baker, no, the other guy. Even the older cops who I th thought those character actors were dead. But no, I saw the photos from the set. I'm like, these guys all look. Older, but good. You know, nice, like, and you got to respect that. Because that was one of the things that was so nice about coming to America. It was like, not only does this actually sort of hold up on its own, not just like a crappy nostalgia sequel, but he brought back pretty much everybody he could. <laughs> Which is like, he even wanted to bring back, uh, who was that? Was that Samuel L. Jackson that was in that bit part? Yeah. just like the robber, and he's the only one that couldn't do it, and that was only because of scheduling conflicts. It wasn't because he was nasty. So... <laughs> yeah, I was... think I think Eddie is, is pulling on his Dolomite good fortune and success with Netflix. And now he's like, for the first time in a long time, motherfucker, I can pull the punches. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's done with his fat suit comedies for a bit. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I can pull the punches and I can say what, I can do what I want. So we're going to break all these motherfuckers. Are they alive? <laughs> <laughs> if they're alive, bring them back. <laughs> yep. A lot of phone calls, man. So, Edward Regan Murphy, born in Brookline, 1961, in the dicey domicile of Bushwick, to a transit cop and aspiring comedian who got stabbed to death by a piece on the side. I'm not kidding you, serious. Not only did this leave him to be raised by a single mother, but he and his brother actually wound up with foster parents for a year before she remarried. He rose to fame as a Saturday Night Live regular from 1980 to 1984, delivering more amusing characters than anyone save Mike Myers in his four years on the show. Mr. Robinson, Black Power Man, Rahim Abdul Muhammad's focus on film, telemarketing huckster and pimp Velvet Jones and the absurd mushmouth adult buckwheat from our gang slash Little Rascals fan. He was one of the all too rare black comedians to forefront racial humor and lampooning of a white-centric culture without coming off as obnoxious or pandering and often directed skits and material in both stand-up and film in that direction, unlike, say, In Living Color, which always pissed me off. He wound up becoming one of the earliest SNL cast-turned-film stars, and save the late John Belushi and the early Mike Myers, was one of the ridiculously small handful of such who managed to be both successful and entertaining therein. We should do a John Belushi show someday, because he actually did we some good write films. That down. Yeah, yeah. He even wound up with an ersatz novelty pop hit produced by Funkmeister Rick James, Potty All the Time, which he delivered with a presumably unintentional sub-butt-wheat lisp. Mm. He famously fathered a daughter with Scary Spice, Mel B, which he originally denied but later owned up to, and has both a divorce and a few kids with various women in his past. But most hilariously, he's more recently become known for chasing after tranny hookers. Oh, Eddie, who knew you swung that way? Even so, and this is true, by the way, he's made the strange transition from raunchy stand-up comedy like Delirious and Raw through R-rated action comedies like Trading Places in 48 Hours 
the juvenile fat suit crap with the nutty professor in Norbit, and Disney voiceovers, a fate that also struck the likes of one-time co-star Gilbert Gottfried and contemporary Whoopi Goldberg, whose career followed a very similar trajectory, as I had mentioned earlier. So unless you have anything else to add, we'll just start off with 48 Hours. The Trinity Harkins comment is true. <laughs> she was blazing, so who could blame him? Um, <laughs> and no, but but there there's a there's a diner on uh, 10th Avenue, 43rd Street. Don't ask me what it's called; it's still there. This was a late night hangout, and I I used to hang out with my uh, my two black friends, my best bud and uh, another guy who would annoy me all the time. So he wasn't a best bud, but he was a close friend. <laughs> he, he he was like. He's like, I'm straight, Lou. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're not. That's okay. Because <laughs> like we would go into hardware people. stores. You go like, hello. <laughs> it's like the cop in the village people. Oh no, I was never gay. I'm straight. Uh huh. So he would, he would take us to this diner like 11 o'clock, 11:30, 12 o'clock at night. And I said, what's going on? Because it's a diner, right? One of those round fucking diners on 10th Avenue, in the 40s, and you're boom, 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 boom. Your fucking table shaking. Like, I didn't put any nickels in the jukebox. Why is the table so You were usually buzzed because it came from some bar. He goes, don't you know what's downstairs? No, what's downstairs? We can go outside and go down around and go inside. It costs $10. When you hang out with crazy drunk black guys late at night, shit can happen. So <laughs> I'm like, uh, tell me first. <laughs> you know? He said, no, Eddie Murphy always goes there. Wasn't it like cruising? You know, <laughs> no, no. So the waiter comes over. He goes, "You tell him about the tranny club downstairs. You want to go, motherfucker?" I'm like, "No." <laughs> and if I would, I would go alone because nobody would know. But... <laughs> so <laughs> I think you spit out your wine. I yeah, I, who would want anybody to know? But anyway, <laughs> so uh, yes. <laughs> Uh, I mean, love the show what's people. the kind of thing that's it's called down, DL for a reason? On the download, exactly. Yeah, the download. <laughs> no, I'd be like, just tell me where the Asian trannies are. I, I don't want to do anything. <laughs> Where's so, the lady boys at? The Thai lady boys. <laughs> oh, there is a place called Lucky Chang's. You know Lucky Chang's? Uh, isn't that a restaurant? Like a Chinese yeah, restaurant? it's a restaurant. But, and it's all lady boys work there. <laughs> I, it, I don't think it's that kind of place, but I guess, you know. <laughs> I was dating a rich girl one time, and when Lucky Chanks used to be located in the Lower East Side, they moved to Kel's Kitchen. Why? Yeah. Think uh-huh. about it. So, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and the, the guy was the the, the my, my girlfriend at the time. This is two twenty ten. Her her friend was well to do, and you know he was gay, but and, yeah. and he was married. Okay. And uh, no, he was married to a guy, and he said, "Come, we'll go hang out." I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> and he brought my girlfriend's then sister and her straight husband, right? Mm-hmm. And by the time we left, that guy had his pants down there pouring ice on his ass and paddling him. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, I always made, made I should come back here one day. <laughs> but they closed. <laughs> He's laughing. Don't die on me. <laughs> they closed, but now I see they reopened in Hell's Kitchen, which is like I would have liked it better in the Lower East Side. So, don't make any judgments. I'm just saying it probably has nice food and servers. <laughs> but I mean, some of the they look pretty, yeah. So, <laughs> so about, 
So all that to tell you that that's what Eddie Murphy's been up to lately. <laughs> oh, yeah, all that, all that. Uh, but come on, it was enjoyable. You're going to die laughing, right? Of course. So no, you listen to the show for. <laughs> you, no, and you and you covered you covered Eddie's yeah some of the high highlights of his Saturday Night Live thing so much so that years later when he had left the cast and they were trying to on video cassette they were trying to and later DVD they were trying to popularize some of the, the highlights of the show when good people were on there were these best of Eddie Murphy on Saturday Night Live collections which were yes. like ridiculously funny. I actually rewatched it just because of the show. <laughs> and there was a lot of good stuff on there. There's a lot of good stuff on there. It was yeah. not my favorite Mr. Robinson skit. He did much better than the one they put on there. But yeah. Yeah, most yeah. Of no, there, there are better. You, you know, they cherry pick like they always yeah. do. But in 1982, he worked with then legendary Walter Hill for 48 hours. So, Jack, tell me a story. Fuck you. Oh, that's one of my favorites. Walter Hill of the Warriors directs this seminal buddy cop film scripted by Terror Train director Roger Spottiswoode, who also gave us the Stallone classics Turner and Hooch and Stop or My Mom Will Shoot from our Sylvester Stallone show. Eddie Murphy makes his big screen debut and forecasts the better part of his pre-fat suit career as a bank robber who demands a 48-hour release for his assistance in tracking down his old partner, who just staged a violent jailbreak by faking a fight with a pal so the two of them could gun down the chain gang CEOs and escape. Class isn't something you buy. Look at you. You got a $500 suit on and you're still a lowlife. Yeah, but I look good. The source of both a prominent soundbite closing out Overkill's famed cover of the subhumans fuck you and an off-quoted Will Smith swipe line in the later Men in Black, this very 80s affair features a drunk driving, abusive, and completely obnoxious Nick Nolte whose doofy but far less offensive presence we stared into the abyss of in the deep from our Jackie Bissett show, pun intended, whose casual racism really endears him to the audience by referring to de facto partner Murphy by the N-word and the popular term of endearment, spear chucker, before engaging him in a they live-esque knuckle duster and nearly getting them both arrested. Oh, those lovable guys, they're sure to become great pals. It turns out that Eddie is just trying to make sure his old partner doesn't get back the money Eddie absconded with and hid in his old car for three years, mind, while locked down, and after nailing the perp, they cut a deal to split it after Eddie makes parole in a few months. You can really tell this was a formative take on what became an entire genre of similar but far less abrasive action comedies, simply by dint of all its unlikable, jagged, and audience-displeasing edges. At the time, it was huge, giving Murphy a new career in largely big-budget films of like, and even spawning a sequel from the same director and cast. A very Midwestern take on the expected hot girlfriend comes by way of the acceptable but not incredibly appealing Annette O'Toole of the Natasha Kinski Cat People, the Richard Pryor Misfire of Superman 3, and Smallville while central casting psychos and thugs Sonny Landham of everything from Joe Sarno and Radley Metzger Hard R to porn and back again to stuff like Firewalker, Action Jackson, and Predator, two of which we discussed in our Chuck Norris, Cannon Films, and Arnold Schwarzenegger shows, and Brian James of the Charlotte Rampling DOA, Schwarzenegger's Red Heat, and Stallone's Tango and Cash, and we've done shows on all three of those folks, and most memorably, House 3, the horror show, as Freddy Krueger meets a much better take on Shocker, Back from the Dead, electric serial killer Max Jenke, an old favorite of that wacky pal of mine that you guys heard at the end of the bonus content on our Satan in the 70s show, all appear. Even Miami Vice's Olivia Brown and John Landis slash Michael Jackson thriller video vixen Ola Ray cameo as assorted hookers and gun malls. This one is so early 80s, it farts Cindy Lauper, but is it any good? Nah, not in retrospect. Not only is it too dark for an Eddie film, or even a buddy cop action comedy, but the drink-while-driving, recurrently racist and nasty Nick Nolte resigned this one to the dustbin of history, leaving modern audiences in kind of disbelief as to how this ever could have been a popular film. I love this movie. Still? I love it still because, yeah, there's a lot of bad 
dark stuff in this. It's race. How did this thing get greenlit? That's what I'm saying. I'm, my mouth was hanging up. I'm like, holy shit. This was a popular film that we all liked. <laughs> you know, like this, uh, you know, uh, all of Nick Nolte's dialogue is spewing. <laughs> this would have been canceled before. Except in a MAGA rally. <laughs> let me see the script. Canceled. You know, like, they, let me see the script. No fucking way. <laughs> Rewrite this. You marshmallow eating banana. Yo, know, there's just no way this would ever get made today. Yeah. But 1982, tail end of the 70s. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to address a lot of, you know, I think they were, they also wanted to address all that pent up shit from black exploitation movies. And let's see if we can drag it out another two or three years. I, I for me, is pure gold because Nick, Nick Nolte is uneven. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's abusive and and he's drinking all the time. It made me think, are you fucking drunk when you're acting? Because sometimes I looked at yeah. And and this cast, you know, James Remar, you know, mentioned Sonny Lanham, Brian James. This is like, this is like, don't go to jail with these guys. They will <laughs> fuck you. Yeah, really. If you go to jail, these guys are in the same. They're gonna fuck you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you've seen Tango and Cash, you know what Brian James is like. So. <laughs> I just watched that the other night again. again. Oh, okay. <laughs> because I, yeah, I watched it because I realized the wife had never seen Tango and Cash. The prison sequence is so hilarious. We discussed this in our Stallone show, but yeah, we we did, we did. And it's so goes, ridiculous and campy. Is this a company? <laughs> Why are they naked? <laughs> it's, a, it's a joke. It's Stallone and it's Kurt Russell oh, yeah. at the at the top of their fame here. Why is he joking? Oh, don't go. Away. <laughs> You know the shower scene, uh-huh. and, you know, and then, then Brian James comes up with this weird fucking accent, which I interviewed Brian James years ago before he died. People used to say, "Lou, don't interview any B movie celebrities; they die after you interview." Yeah, it's actually true. It's after I meet them too. I met a whole bunch of people at your show there, and yeah. every time I get like a thing signed to me or whatever the hell, within a year, maybe three years, they're all dead. It's like the walls of the yeah. dead here. <laughs> And I remember I asked Brian James, we're getting back to Eddie, don't don't worry. <laughs> and I asked Brian James about this movie, and he loved this movie because he said Tango and Cash. He loved Tango and Cash because he said, I could do whatever I wanted. So he said, what kind of accent you want? I'll make something up. <laughs> <laughs> so I asked him about 48 hours, and he said, no, I like that. He said because it was it was it was a, I got to play the captain. I got to play the you know the chief inspector, right. who wasn't necessarily a good guy, but I got. To play. It was better than his usual baddie psycho role. <laughs> yeah, I, I like this. Now Eddie Eddie in this, yo, he's, oh, he's fine. He's fine, and I love how they introduced him. Roxanne, you know, <laughs> off key Roxanne. I wasn't sure why they did that. I'm like, okay. I know it was a big hit at the time. Probably because it was different. (laughs) But uh, there's a lot of early Eddie Murphy movies that are so weird and they're highly enjoyable, like the next one. Yes, 1983, Trading Places. Jill Queen, who I've been revisiting after the discussion a few weeks back, once referred to starring Dan Aykroyd as the three most terrifying words in the English language. But we all know that isn't true in the wake of folks like Chevy Chase, Bill Murray, Paulie Shore, Ed Pitchman, Jim Ernest Varney, Will Farrell, Chris Farley, David Spade, Jim Carrey, and pretty much anyone ever associated with Saturday Night Live, bar arguably John Belushi and, of course, the first decade worth of Eddie Murphy films. Even so, in his amusing cameo on Canadian Bacon aside, this comedy from John Landis of the Blues Brothers, Into the Night, Oscar from our Stallone show, and the later Coming to America, features Eddie and live-action Burt, Aykroyd as a poor con artist and rich fuck who, as the title suggests, swap roles to very divergent outcomes. 
That man is a product of a poor environment. There's absolutely nothing wrong with him, and I can prove it. Of course there's something wrong with him. He's a Negro. Probably been stealing since he could crawl. This cringe-inducing bit of dialogue actually proves to be the crux of the film, as Ralph Bellamy of Loveball Stare Rogers' comedy Carefree and Howard Hawks' His Girl Friday, Rosemary's Baby from our Polanski show, and Oh God from our Donald Pleasant show and the Fat Boys' Disorderlies, Betts Ackroyd's filmic rather... Hello. Best actress <laughs> film father. <laughs> yeah, that's why I write these things in advance. So I was like, okay, and then I'll read them on the fly like weeks later. Best actress filmic father, Don Amici of our Stallone show's Oscar, that they could turn Amici's son into a low-life criminal and Murphy into a corporate commodities trader. I'm sure he'd take the crime like a fish to water. You have to put him in the wrong surroundings, of course, with the worst sort of people. I mean, real scum. We've done it before. Ackridge, unjustly framed, vilified, and effectively disowned, finds himself living with a hooker, Jamie Lee Curtis of The Fog and Halloween 1 and 2 from our John Carpenter show. Oh, yeah. Perfect and True Lies from our Schwarzenegger show, which, by the way, I'd re-seen recently, and I was like, hmm. Uh, (laughs) So you were kind of right. See? See? I don't like her thing when she was trying to be sexy on the bed. It didn't work. That's not her. She's more of a tomboy type, but, you know, especially seeing her in this film, as I'll get to, I was like, and, of course, perfect. I was like, hmm, okay. Uh, anyway, Jamie Lee Curtis show coming up. Okay, we could. Whose earthy performance and acting chops not only save this otherwise decidedly dated picture, but leave her acting rings around everyone save Bellamy and Elliot. Seriously, she outclasses everyone in the picture as a hooker, complete with a fetching tight number that's see-through enough to leave her effectively showing off every detail of her formidable rack, which she later exposes to full public view twice, and she still owns the picture. The woman deserves props. Meanwhile, Murphy distinguishes himself in his new role, managing to score big time by using his street-smart con-man game. Denim Elliott of Vault of Horror, House That Drip Blood, and To the Devil of Daughter from our Amicus and Hammer shows also appears as the resigned, if disgusted, butler to all these clowns. Of course, Bellamy and Amici decide to stab everyone in the back when the going gets good, trying to put Murphy back out where he came from and keep Ackroyd from returning to his prior role and position of favor, but they, with a little help from both Curtis and Elliot, manage to turn the tables and bankrupt the oligarchs while hitting it rich themselves. Oh, see, I made Lewis a bet here. Lewis bet me that we couldn't both get rich and put y'all in the poorhouse at the same time. Well, it's a nice 99% overthrows the rich corporate bastards who built us all and ruined our collective lives story. It's not just the fantasy aspects that don't work here. Even down and out, Ackroyd is hardly George Siegel and fun with Dick and Jane, much less the far superior and more realistic carbon copy both discussed in our George Siegel show. Mm-hmm. Landis is a big-budget, heartwarming schlockster at heart. He simply doesn't have social critique, much less satire in his wheelhouse. While well-intentioned, certainly watchable for Curtis in whatever aspect he chooses to hone in on, this just comes off as dated as it is well-remembered, but it's generally hard to sit through stuff like Caddyshack, which the wife and I recently sat through, and which only survives by merit of Rodney Dangerfield's crass but Marx Brothers-style anarchic force of chaos and the repulsive rich Republican asshole world he forces his low-class new money way into. And this one doesn't have a Rodney to give it its well-deserved flip on its head. It's only worth watching for Curtis to hell with the rest of this. Before we go further, I wanted to say, you mentioned Rodney Dangerfield. One of the fucking funniest things I've ever seen, and I watched it again, is Easy Money. Yes, that, that is one of his better ones, yes. Now is he better? Rodney, and everybody forgets, Joe Pesci is in that. And Rodney Dangerfield and Joe Pesci are so fucking funny. And, that and a Joey Joel theme song, Easy Money. <laughs> that is so fucking... I don't know if I can squeeze a Rodney Dangerfield tribute, but <laughs> but that movie, oh my God. So, what do I think of Training Places? Yeah, it's dated. It was dated when I saw it. Yo, know, it takes place in bleak New York winter, the rich fucks in New York, and I think that's part of the reason why principal photography shot in Philly, of course. <laughs> <laughs> 
maybe, cheaper there. <laughs> uh, yes, nothing looks like Manhattan, like Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Yeah. yeah. I thought it looked bizarre. I was like, okay. Yeah, because it's even more gloomier here. <laughs> but it's a good cold weather movie. Not like John Carpenter's The Thing, but, you know, I, Eddie's fine. He actually, I don't dislike Dan too much. You know, he, he's, he's playing a sort of really weird role that's teetering on the edge of drama and comedy, playing a schlomo, and, like, almost like someone who should know better but doesn't. You know, like, it takes him a while to, to catch on to, like, you know, everybody's fucking him over. I don't despise Dan Aykroyd, despite the quote I used from Queen. But yeah. uh, what I find about him is, like I said, he's like a live-action Bert from Sesame Street. No, he's I He's always, like, so pointedly stiff. You know, I guess that's part of his shtick that it just, I don't know. The only time I really, like, sit there and, like, laugh my ass off, to some extent, the Blues Brothers, that was more the script than John yeah. Belushi. But... Definitely uh, his cameo in Canadian Bacon, which I quote all the time, where they come up there and they've got the truck that says, you know, suck me Canadians, fuck you guys. And it's like, uh-uh, what's wrong with this here? And he makes him repaint it like, suspens les Canadiens, because he had to be in France. And he did this weird reversal role with uh, Belushi, his last movie, Continental Divide, I think it was. Uh, it was, so neighbors. was that neighbors. 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 Good movie. Yeah, one, one, one of Belushi's last pictures. Mm -hmm. But he did this weird reversal thing where, what's going on? Well, John wanted that. He didn't want to be the comedy guy again. So I was like, I want to do a serious role, like Continental Divide, like you mentioned. That was yeah. the one he did. He did two in a row, and then he died. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's interesting. I, I like Eddie in this. It's not it's harmless, but Jamie Lee Curtis steals this film. Definitely. And like I say, it's not just because, okay, yeah, you get to see her and she's pretty hot in this. She's actually really out-acts everybody. There's extra reasons to love this movie, because Dan Aykroyd's character is Louis Winthorpe III, and busty Jamie Lee Curtis keeps calling him Louie, Louie. <laughs> I came well, so every time she reason. did that. <laughs> I can say, you should use it for jack-off material or something like <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Louie. She plays Sophia, right? Yes. What white girl's name Sophia? But but every time, she, yeah, and she unearths those huge memory lines, which I always remembered well, twice. <laughs> Thank you, John Landis. Um, and then when she's not, she's walking around a skin tight number where you can see everything anyway. <laughs> oh, but I, nice. you know, I that, that's one reason why this movie rates very highly. <laughs> yeah, I definitely appreciate when, it. When Jamie's like walking down, like, and she's she's affecting this Brooklynese thing, like, Louie, Louie. I'm like, yes, keep calling my name. <laughs> it's like being back home, huh? <laughs> Yeah, no, I never had one like that. No, 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 no. <laughs> Although she's a friend on Facebook, maybe I should write to her. She'd probably say, fuck you, you freak. I just saw her on The View this morning. Um, I, I'm getting to like her a lot more in my old age. I don't know what it is. But... Oh, because she's pushing yes. Halloween ends, yeah. But anyway, so 1984, whew, <laughs> best defense. Desperately unfunny quote unquote comedy from Messiah of Evil's Willard Huyck, who also gave us a film generally considered one of the worst big budget pictures ever released, the notorious Howard the Duck, aided and abetted by a desperately unfunny height challenge Dudley Moore, who beyond his apotheosis as a drunken spoiled rich fuck who yells, You're a hooker? across a posh restaurant to Liza Minnelli and Arthur, also appeared in such cinematic triumphs as Blake Edwards' Bo Derek making Stinker 10, an early Chevy Chase vehicle, Foul Play. The not-especially-appealing Dudley is married to the not-especially-appealing Kate Capshaw and messing around with the not-especially-appealing Helen Shaver, and the whole schlemiel is so nonsense about his developing a crucial part for a new tank, though it's really not his idea, which sucked. It's a stolen idea from a rival who slipped it into Dudley's briefcase before a meeting with wacky sledgehammer himself, David Rash. 
The rival, as he suspected, is double-crossed and killed. Dudley takes credit for the dead guy's work. Rash and friends come after him over it. The company uses it. He figures out the flaw in the new design and winds up saving the day two years down the road when Eddie, who's barely in this piece of shit, is using said tank against whatever commie stronghold or Arab emirate we were butting heads with at the time of filming. Sounds like a mistaken identity spy flick slash comedy, right? Nope. This turgid, pointless mess is little more than an excuse for Moore to pleasure himself at the expense of cast, crew, and audience. He was never funny, but 1984 was well past what anyone would consider the man's prime, and this was likely the nail in his career coffin. P.U. Well, rumor, a.k.a. legend, has it that, you know... They filmed it without Eddie. They filmed it without Eddie. And and Dudley Moore, he, he did 10, and he did a few other comeback pictures. His acerbic, tight, very British work with Peter Cook was very unique and you have the closest thing we can get to that would be monty python and the goons and i have a couple of their their audio albums uh dudley moore and peter cook peter cook was always like the alpha you know and then he passed no drunken fucking casualty um and but then dudley moore's career took on this whole thing after arthur and then blake edwards 10 with Bo derrick and shit like that no we're not gonna do a Bo derrick no. show we discussed and, her in wonderful career a little bit in Richard Harris show for Tarzan the Ape Man. In the, in the Richard <laughs> Harris show, yes. And so anyway, you know, they were trying to use Dudley in a couple of things. But here's the thing. Dudley was drinking, but Dudley was also suffering from a debilitating disease, which made it appear like he was always drunk. So he said, fuck it, I'm going to keep drinking anyway. Uh, it's very, I, I forgot the name of it. It's very close to what uh, the guy from uh, Michael J. Fox. Oh, nice. From. That's a nasty one. Uh, what the hell is that thing? It's a nasty one. He's, he, he couldn't play piano anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, Dudley Moore a pianist yeah. by heart, you know, love. Yeah, be dazzled. And, uh, you know, it's hard for him to remember lines. And, you know, is that Gehrig's disease? Yeah. Is that Uncle No, it's something like that. It's it was it was not new, but it, it, at that time period, it was like been around, but we didn't know about it that much. Yes, it's similar to Gehrig and MS, but it's not. Yes, yes, uh, yeah, similar to Gehrig and MS. And so he's been a career drinker since the sixties. All those great British comedians mm-hmm. were lesser souls. And but yeah, Dudley's like, I'm, why stop drinking? Oh fucking, I'm sick as a bastard anyway. And so they have problems with this picture because they, you know, will it hide and produced by Gloria Katz. You know, come on, they did Howard the Duck. We know how well that went. <laughs> why would you why would you finance a picture directed by these people anyway? I think it was a year before Howard the Duck. That's probably why they got away with it. <laughs> was it? Was it? Okay. I think it was 85 or 86. That's what I'm saying. That. And, and, and Just off the top of my Kate head. Kate Capshaw, who was so wonderful in Indiana Jones and the one fucking movie I hate in the whole series, The Temple of Doom. And she met, she was married to Spielberg at the time. I don't care if you have big tits and you're blonde. I hate you. But she screamed all the time. Yes. Yeah. Is nothing really good. This yeah. You mentioned David Rashi from um, Sledgehammer. Sledgehammer. Uh, George C. Sunter from Deer Hunter was in here. He's recognizable from other things. Yeah. So legend has it they had an unreleasable film, paid Eddie Murphy a shitload of money. To I mean, for about three scenes that are supposed to be in the future in the tank, and it's just terrible. Yeah, yeah, to, to appear in a tank and, you know, to laugh it up a little bit. And it was just, it came out and it did nobody any good because it appeared like, this is a shitty movie. <laughs> but the next one's better. Oh, yeah, the next one's much better. 1984, Beverly Hills Cop, the film that made Eddie a star. 
While his work with Saturday Night Live and the prior 48 Hours and Trading Places really brought his name to popular attention, it was this film and its sequels that really made Eddie a power player, and to a large extent he's still coasting on its reputation to this day. Hell, after the successful revisitation of Coming to America, he's even working on a fourth sequel as we speak, like we said earlier. With the ridiculously popular Grammy-winning soundtrack filled with top ten hits like LaBelle Allen Patty's New Attitude and the even more likable, if predictably lower charting, Stir It Up, the Pointer Sisters' Neutron Dance, Eagles alum Glenn Fry's The Heat Is On, plus big names of the day like Shalimar, The System, and Rick Jane, and a post-Oingo Boingo and future bad soundtrack composer Danny Elfman, even the synth-pop theme from Harold Faltermeyer, Axel F., became a chart-topper. And even beyond that, you got Prince Protégé Vanity 6 with Nasty Girl, which didn't appear on a soundtrack, but is there in a strip club scene. This surprisingly decent and crazily popular film comes from the helm of questionable flopmeister Martin Brest, whose handful of credits include the career-killing Benefer Mark I stinker Gilly, which we spoke to in our Al Pacino show, the annoying Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Chevy Chase Crap Fest Spies Like Us. I guess this was his lucky moment. Judge Reinhold of the 1980 Running Scared, Lisa Eilbacher of the Sean Cassidy, Parker Stevens, and Hardy Boys, and the hilarious 10 to Midnight from our Charles Bronson show, Ronnie Cox of Deliverance and Total Recall from our Burt Reynolds and Arnold Schwarzenegger shows, and annoying sitcom schmucks Paul Reiser, the wimpy guy who gets bossed around and mad about you, Damon Wayans of the never even slightly amusing In Living Color, and fucking balky Bronson Pinchot fill out the cast, and even the presence of those three assholes can't ruin it. I was going to call my article Michael Jackson is sitting on top of the world, but now I might as well just call it Michael Jackson can sit on the top of the world just as long as he doesn't sit in the Beverly Palm Hotel because there's no <clears throat> allowed in there. The plot is typical cop film action comedy, with Eddie as a maverick cop who's penchant for keeping his cards close to his vest, leads to an expensive failed sting operation, but the real storyline kicks in when he gets an unplanned visit for an old friend he used to boost cars with before he joined the force, who's stupid enough to try skimming off the top from the mob. Of course they take him out, leaving Eddie to take a sabbatical to solve the murder and get revenge, but being one of these buddy cop films, it's pretty lighthearted, and Eddie cracks a lot of snide jokes, mugs, and generally comes off as the class clown he always was. It's not a great film or anything, but like most films after the golden age of the 70s, it's better than far too many of its peers and descendants simply by being watchable, having a plot that makes some degree of logical flow and sense, and holding a likable performance or two, something you very seldom find in more recent fare. I can't say it was great fun in revisiting this one after all these years, but it's an enjoyable enough film for the type, and it was a surprise here. So many huge hits of the era originating from a single soundtrack. I actually saw this in the theater with my father, and he liked it so much he watched it twice in a row. We just stayed there, and I fell asleep because it was like the midnight showing, so that was like, you know, two in the morning. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so it, it, it is a decent film for the type and for the era for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a decent film. I think I like 48 Hours better personally, but it's pretty good. I think I mentioned on whether or not you keep it in. You know, they're bringing back Judge Reinhold, John Ashton, um, Bronson Pinchot, Sergi. How old is that guy now to be playing that part? Oh, God. Yeah. And, you know, back then it was mimicking. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see what they do with that. Stephen Burkhoff, you know, I watched it again for the show and like, there was a period in the 80s where Stephen Burkhoff, he was a theatrical director, British theatrical director, who started doing movies to make more money, I guess. And he was really good at playing pricks, evil guys. You know, he was in one of the Bond movies as like the evil dude, and, and uh, he's very good at playing evil bastards. And so he plays a European evil bastard in this picture. They, they should just like not give him a name. You're evil, European evil bastard. Uh, evil Euro trash. <laughs> Evil Euro Trash. Harold Faltermeyer, you mentioned him, 
And last, not this movie, but last week I walked through the little fucking thing for this error. And I hear, I waited for the fucking credits. Scored by Harold Faltermeyer. I knew it. I knew it. (laughs) And the other guy who did just like Harold was Trevor Rabin from Yes. You know, before Trevor Rabin joined Yes in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he he did that whole huge popular and very good revival where the owner of a lonely heart and all that shit he wrote. I actually like those two S albums. Yeah, yeah. I'm not really a Yes fan. He did this kind of shit. And, you know, if it wasn't Harold Faltermeyer, it was Trevor Rabin, like, just like, sitting in front of a big keyboard or a bank of keyboards going, I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> and, yes, I was watching the movie the other day. I'm like, it's Harold Faltermeyer. I know it's, and it was. Yep. We're going on to another movie with a really incredibly hot uh, female co-star. That's true. Um who kind of disappeared off the face of the earth, almost. It's a weird movie. What do you think about this? Oh, well, okay, let's get to this. The Golden Child, 1986. Eddie foreshadows the dive his career would take in the 90s, if not the abysmal desecrations he'd leave in his wake since the millennium, with his dour, turgid, and self-indulgent crap fest from Michael, not Guy, mind, but Michael Ritchie, who delivered not only the similarly heinous Bad News Bears Go to Japan and The Island from our Tony Curtis and Michael Caine shows, but Fletch Liz, what an auteur, huh? With Mr. Fuji tag team partner Tiger Chung Lee, seriously, Prince of Darkness star Victor Wong from our John Carpenter show, For Your Eyes Only Charles Dance from our trio of Bond shows, and our pal James Hahn, ubiquitous film baddie, co-star of the Billy Blanks Jalal Murphy comedy classic Talons of the Eagle, narrator of the strangely still unreleased Human Vapor, Criterion Arrow, get on that already, an apparent porn director, this Big Trouble in Little China style bottom scraper, Yellow Peril, quote, comedy adventure, dumps dime novel faux eastern mysticism into what was likely intended as an Indiana Jones style affair, only without the adventure or the laughs, and in retrospect, pretty damn offensive and stupid besides. Dumb revisionist fanboys who denigrate 80s metal down to the level of, quote, hard rock might want to take note of who's listening to Rat's video for Body Talk off their Jump the Shark album Dancing Undercover, where the band wasn't even talking to each other but still managed to deliver on about half of the album. Is it a bunch of old dads and construction workers who typically enthuse over the likes of Tom Petty and Bad Company? Nah. It's a gang of central casting one percenters who are well known for their adoration of sleepy Led Zeppelin and Journey albums. Morons. There isn't a plot worth discussing here. Suffice to say, Eddie is a half-assed social worker who's also magically a missing persons PI somehow. When some last emperor come Matreya gets kidnapped by evildoers to prevent him from saving the world, his cult of whack job seeks out Eddie's services, dubbing him the Chosen One for every asinine reason. Somehow this is drawn out to an endless 94 minutes, which feels like four hours if you have the chutzpah and lack of life interest to actually sit through this entire thing. <laughs> Even on high speed, I couldn't. Did I mention the releasing company was too cheap and lazy to add subtitles to the disc? Ah! But yes, the female lead, who is some sort of Eurasian, is actually rather attractive. It's just, by the time you think, okay, they're finally going to get together, and you know, they have this long build-up, and oh wait, no, she won't, he won't, whatever... All of a sudden, they're ready to do something, and she's dead five seconds later. I'm like, oh, my God, what kind of shitty movie is this? <laughs> it's terrible. I don't remember if she died, really. Oh, She did. Right after, for some reason, he decided to put off the final sex scene. Whatever. Let's do this. We're finally going to get together. I've had feelings for her, whatever. And then he's like, nah, I won't do it. Next day, she's dead. Well, you know, what was, what was weird is, like, she's 55 now. She lives in England. Yeah, she's Eurasian. 
But for some reason, what was that? Jane March is the one I was thinking about. There, there were two Eurasian actresses that were British Asian, Asian British, who they always had them play, excuse me, underplay, and play younger than their age. And in this picture, the golden child, Charlotte Lewis is supposed to play someone much younger. And so it, it seemed kind of like, yeah, I don't know about this, you know, because Eddie's supposed to be taking, it's not like Eddie's taking care of a woman or a, a uh, mid-teen. She looks like she's 11, but she's <laughs> obviously older. And then like Eddie wants to, well, we all want to bang her anyway, but Eddie wants to bang her. And then you're like, no, nah, I don't think you should, man, because she's too young. But then, and then they kill her. And yeah, you're right. And so it's like, I don't know. The reason I remember Charlotte Lewis at all was we mentioned her, I believe, in our Roman Polanski show because she was one of his defenders because they worked on one of his films and they're like, oh yeah, he like wrestles or goes after all his actresses and she's like, no, he never did that. I was like, I wish he did because I liked him. I would have gone with it. <laughs> right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So no surprise. Two years later, he goes right back into Beverly Hills Cop Two, yes, nineteen eighty-seven. Directed by yet another bloated, superficial visual stylist, this time Tony Scott of The Hunger and Top Gun, this one features Brigitte Nielsen in one of her final notable film roles as a gun nut jewelry store robber. Believe it or not, she was hot shit for a few years there, having screwed Arnold Schwarzenegger, who then dumped her on Sly Stallone, who decided to marry, then dump her, at which point she stopped having some degree of marquee value in stuff like Red Sonja, Rocky IV, and Cobra, and wound up with her biggest credit being a part in 976 Evil 2, and also she was banging at that point, Dolph Lundgren. And of course we did shows on both of those guys, uh, being Stallone and uh, Schwarzenegger. I met her one time in an elevator. Really? <laughs> I was in an elevator with Brigitte Nielsen, and the elevator opened up. This was at the old Sheridan Secaucus. And I walked in. I said, you're tall. I was going to ask you that. <laughs> and she goes, yeah, but you're almost as tall as I am. I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were obviously both lit. So where do you go with that? You just drop it. Because <laughs> it's Brigitte Nielsen. I just seen her in Red Sonja. She could bite, kiss my ass. Kick, not kiss my ass. Kill, kick my ass. <laughs> And Cobra, and she's in a couple of shitty movies like that. But uh, it's funny, I actually had a good elevator experience with, of all people, Linda Blair at that, not that exact show, but the same show, and when it moved. And uh, she was such a friendly girl. I'm like, wow, I'm really surprised. You, know, you figure, okay, this been around for how many years? And everybody like, oh, yeah, The Exorcist, all those crappy Corman movies, whatever. She'd, she'd be a real bitch. Nah, she was a sweetheart. <laughs> so, anyway. Of course, like I said, we did shows on uh, Schwarzenegger and Stallone, if you're interested in more of the gory details on Miss Nielsen and most of those films. You also get future Uwe Boll, House of the Dead star Jürgen Frock now of Das Boot, <laughs> absurdist stand-up comic up the all-night coast, and co-star of Andrew Dice Clay vehicle Ford Fairlane, the late great Gilbert Gottfried, Dunwich Horror and Psych-Out whack job Dean Stockwell, and Gardner Scott lookalike Timothy Carhart in this mediocre follow-up where Eddie heads back out west because he heard about a rash of high-end burglaries that resulted in former rival-slash-pal Lieutenant Ronnie Cox winding up shot. He hooks up with the beat cops who kept busting him last time. The perps are caught. Happy ending. Let's do this again in a few years. While audiences still appreciate the film, it didn't do half so well. And despite tapping more big names of the day, like the Porno Sisters, again, George Michael, Corey Hart, Jermaine Jackson, Ready for the World, and the Jets, with Bob Seger tagging him for the old folks crowd who only cared about the Glenn Fry track last time, the songs are lesser, and the soundtrack really didn't go anywhere, comparatively speaking. It's fair, but it makes the original look like a work of art rather than the surprisingly likable populist hack job it actually is. It's okay. It's it's not horrible. It's yeah. uh, 
it's definitely watchable. It's you know likable. It's, it's watchable. It's serviceable. I, you know, there's a you don't like Tony Scott. I can see <laughs> brother really, but uh, he's done some. He's he's a uh, his thing is flashy style. Yeah, he's a visual stuff. He's like Michael Mann. Yeah, which I actually just rewatched Collateral. I'm pushing you on Tom Cruise, <laughs> which is a great film where Tom Cruise is a psychotic killer. Forcing Jamie Foxx to drive him around all night while he kills people. It's a good movie. You know, we've done so many strange people at this point. I'm not against the Tom Cruise show someday. <laughs> there you go, baby. You're going to like this one. If you've not seen Collateral, anyway, it's a Michael Mann picture, and you compare the two. They're a bit different. but Just in terms of being vapid visual stylist, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> but Tony's got me fun stuff. He did the original Hunger. You yes. mentioned that. Top Gun, which is, yeah, I haven't seen the new one. I heard it's a lot of fun. He did this. He also did one of my fave Bruce Willis pictures. We haven't done Bruce. The Last Boy Scout. And he did True Romance from a Tarantino script, which is considered one of the better Tarantino pictures. He did Domino. He did the very good Taking a Pelham 123 remake. And he did the terrible 18 remake with Liam Neeson. Let's not even talk about that. <laughs> but um, it's it's Flash. It's it's not horrible. It's it's like more of the same. Yeah, but less. <laughs> I, I think Eddie was really wise to go back to stand-up performance. And uh, did you see Raw? Not since I saw it, God, when it came out back on HBO or wherever the hell. But, yes, I had seen it. And I was like, damn, this guy's filthy. It was back in those days when there wasn't too many really foul-mouthed, racy comedians that were on television at that point. And this was like, wow, he was kind of notorious for it. So, you know, again, he's emulating Richard Pryor, so what do you expect? But, yeah, did you want to talk about that one at all? Yeah, Raw and Delair is too... Eddie Murphy stand-up uh, shows, basically they're films. Stand-up shows. They were on, you know, he was on tour. He played like the garden, big places all around, you know, all around the country. And you know, they're not very long because you know, stand-up shows. You past ninety minutes, you can't stretch it. And yeah. they're, they're very funny. And Raw actually had some wraparound footage with people like Samuel L. Jackson, like playing Eddie's uncle, or you know, some. The, some of the weigh-ins playing like kids in Eddie's house, you know, because like a lot of this, a lot of his stuff is my family, my family, you know, and I guess they decided to have actors portray his family members in, in some of these uh, wraparound things. It's raw. And there's a reason like the why it's called raw. <laughs> and it's, it's, which one is better? I would say Delirious yeah. is more fun. I was actually thinking Delirious was the better one. Delirious is the better one, but you know, he, he wanted to get back in touch with not so much his Saturday Night Live days, but his preset. You know, that's how he got hired on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Because he was a stand-up comic. So he wanted to go back to that. So, you know, these these are two enjoyable things. If you see them, don't pass them up. Coming to America is next. Coming to America. Yes, 1988. <laughs> 1988. Coming to America. He's also the writer, believe it or not. The story, anyway, not the actual screenwriter. Good morning, my neighbors. Hey, fuck you. <laughs> Eddie O'Brien Nights with Trading Places director John Landis for the first of his Men of a Dozen Rolls stick affairs. But unlike later turds like the Nutty Professor films or Norbit, this was actually quite endearing and amusing. Apparently Landis and Murphy, who got on well in the aforementioned film, really butted heads here because now Eddie was a big-time star with all the ego and diva-esque behavior that implies. Thankfully that doesn't come across on screen. Eddie is a pampered African prince who rebels against his dim-witted but subservient arranged marriage to be Vanessa Bell of aerobic slasher Death Spa, heading off to America to find an independent woman who'll want him for himself, not his money and status. I've got a secret. I worship the devil. 
Unfortunately for him, he chooses Johnson Family Vacation Sherry Headley, a decidedly willful girl whose father, John Amos, the take-no-shit patriarch of good times, whose filmography never got above the level of the Peacemaster and the Dario Argento George Romero misfire Two Evil Eyes from our very first show, which was on Argento, with the sole exceptions of this film and Die Hard 2. And he's a scam artist running a lawsuit baiting McDonald's ripoff named McDowell's, complete with the identical logo and menu. My name is Peaches, and I'm the best. All the DJs want to feel my breasts. She also has a sleazy boyfriend, Eric LaSalle of Rappin', which was literally Breaking 3 with an alter title, and the turgid, depressing Fox Marvel film Logan, who tries to force her into an engagement without even consulting her, which drives her into the arms of Eddie's pretend poor person, Prince Akeen. They also take bottom-end jobs at Amos' fast food joint, which leads him to disapprove of his daughter's interest in Murphy, thinking he's just another ghetto dead-ender. Then Eddie's own family, Venerable James Earl Jones, Thulsa Doom and the voice of Vader himself, gets involved, which turns Headley off because he lied to her the whole time. In the end, Jones is convinced by his wife to swap Headley for Belle at Akeem's wedding without telling him, and there's the expected happy ending. Whiny stand-up comedian Louie Anderson, body by Jake's celebrity personal trainer Jake Steinfeld of Americathon, Cheech and Chong's next movie, and the unintentionally hilarious Thanksgiving slasher Home Sweet Home, discussed in Third Eye Cinema's Slasherama podcast with SOV auteur Tim Ritter, and Blackula, Salt and Pepper, Cotton Comes to Harlem, and The Beast Must Die's erudite and theatrical Calvin Lockhart of our Blaxploitation and Amicus shows, also appear in small roles. There's a lot of good-natured laughs along the way, and the story is at heart kind of sweet. Making this one of Eddie's rare forays into rom-com territory, I think the only other time he tried it was Boomerang. My wife got me to finally watch this one about a year back, not too long before they announced its long and separated sequel, which was in its own way pretty amusing as well, reuniting nearly the entire cast to reprise the same rules, as I mentioned earlier, and that's a very nice touch. Hey, we're going to differ on that. I hate this fucking movie. Really? <laughs> I, 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 sorry, America. Well, you seem to hate rom-coms, I'll say that. No, come on. <laughs> I would love to do a Sandra Bullock show, but I know you like curse her name. <laughs> Actually, I saw this movie with her and Keanu Reeves, which is just tremendously good. Speed? <laughs> no, The Lake House. Really? That was good. That was good. It's a, it's a, it's a twisted rom com. See, I got you to do a Whoopi Goldberg show. Maybe I got you to do a uh, Sandra Bullock show. <laughs> I would do a Sandra. Oh, okay, perfect. Did you I'm watch The it. Bird Box? You gotta see that fucking. Scene. No, I didn't see that one. You gotta see that. Which is crazy, because I've seen so many Sandra Bullock films. My wife loves her. Oh, it's on Netflix. You're going to have to fucking subscribe, you bastard. Uh, <laughs> no, it's a post-apocalyptic thing. you got to see that. It's so woo, creepy. Nice. Thanks. Anyway, so I'm sorry, America. It's where I came in. Uh, <laughs> I, I love Eddie. I love Eddie, man. Eddie, you're my man. Hey, Louie, who are you? Fuck you. Um... <laughs> And I like John Landis, and this, I can just say no to, I just don't like this movie. It's just like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it just never did anything for me. I, I, I watched it several times. I managed to avoid it until just, I think it was last year, right before the other one came out, a couple months before that. And I was like, oh, you never saw Coming to America? I'm like, no. I was like, yeah, you got to watch this. And I was like, okay, you know, that was, I actually liked it. And for a 19... 88 movie. It's amazing how many people. Oh God, yeah, this is the short fucker aspect. <laughs> yeah, and how many people like you know Samuel Jackson's in a small role like he's just like the fucking. Every time I see Samuel L. Jackson in a movie, I'm like this is the most hardworking motherfucker. And I used to think that of Michael Caine, mm. but Michael's slowing down in his age. So every time you see a movie with Samuel L. Jackson, I'm like this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with that one. This guy, you know, what did and you and you know, 
Yes, you, you should write that one down, Samuel Jackson, because oh, that'd be a long one. He's in so many damn movies. <laughs> yeah, it's a gazillion movies because the guy works so much. And what is there was a possibility for sure. You know, you know, he was in the Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard and the Return to Hit, whatever the fuck that thing was, <laughs> with Ryan Reynolds. And yo, know, you got Ryan Reynolds and Samuel Jackson starring in a movie playing assassins who hate each other. The dialogue is beyond blue, to put it kindly. Well, he's both like pictures are stolen by Salma Hayek, spelling the most the most amazing F word content you've ever heard. <laughs> Why don't you fuck me? You haven't fucked me. You better fuck me. I'm like, what? What am I watching? I love this. She's a so, hot number, but she comes off as a total bitch. I have no idea how she is in person. <laughs> I would love to fuck her. Oh, oh, yeah, gorgeous. Sorry, people. Oh, oh, we're going to come out. No, no. I. <laughs> if I met her at a party and if I was single, see, that's the difference. <laughs> Hey, Sorry. No judgment there. Trust me. I understand. So, <laughs> Harlem Nights. Yes. So, 1989, Harlem Nights, he's also the writer, executive producer, and director on this one. You don't want to mess around with them Creole women. You fuck around and get a root put on your ass. What's a root? It's like a voodoo curse. All them Creole girls know how to do it. He was messing around with a Creole girl and played it dirty. Shit, his dick strung up the side of a cocktail weenie. Eddie wrote and even directed this one to work with his comedy idol Richard Pryor of The Mac, Uptown Saturday Night, Car Wash, The Wiz, Silver Streak, and Blazing Saddles, who gets the lion's share of the screen time. You know how they say never meet your heroes? Yeah. Eddie was hoping for a genuine collaboration with Pryor, but apparently he just showed up, hit his marks, and left. Oh, well, so much for that idea. He also gives a more significant role than his own to Red Fox, a Rudy Ray Moore-type party record stand-up comic. Why do you think he got all them X's in his name, as he once famously offered on his long-running sitcom, Seraphine and Son, whose sole film realm of note outside of this one was a big part in the amusing blaxploiter Cotton Comes to Harlem, discussed in our Blaxploitation show. A few other minor and notable show up for bit parts like Della Reese of Beauty Shop and Ray Danton's Psychic Killer, which was reviewed over at thirdicinema.wordpress.com, who gets to deliver such immortal bond mods as, I've got a girl whose pussy is so good, if you threw it up in the air, it'd turn to sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> to America, pal. Arsenio <laughs> Hall, who's so... They can, only those people could do that shit. We can't do that shit. <laughs> 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 anyway, come to America, pal. <laughs> you got a white guy walking to a bar and say shit like that, they batch down a fucking club. <laughs> Who are you talking about, man? <laughs> oh, my God. Coming to America, pal, Arsenio Hall, whose sole non-Murphy achievement, beyond getting a talk show audience to hoot gutturally like circus animals at every pronouncement, was his terrible fat suit music parodies of Heavy D. And seriously, he released a whole album of this shit. Uh-oh, that voodoo bitch. Jasmine Guy from A Different World puts on an oddly appealing show as the highly sexed Louise Brooks Croft mobster mob who has an ill-advised affair with Pryor, Layla Rashawn a breaking and breaking two electric boogaloo, as well as a bit part in Murphy's later Boomerang, and I believe we discussed the breaking films in our Canon Films show. As a high-class hooker, St. Ives and Maniac Cop 2's Michael Lerner, the former from our Charles Bronson and Jackie Bissett shows, and Danny Aiello of Fort Apache the Bronx, Hide in Plain Sight, and Jackie Chan's attempt at a Bill Lustig-style James Glickenhouse 80s seedy New York celebration, The Protector. 
Honestly, I could give a shit about the accessible plot here. Everyone's either running a speakeasy or a mobster. There's all sorts of rivalries and crooked cops on the take, and who really gives a shit? It's just a decidedly poor excuse to waste an interminable 116 minutes with Pryor, Fox, and occasional interjections from Reese, Arsenio, and Eddie. People seem to love this piece of shit. I never, ever liked it, and I still don't. I'm sure your take is different. Not much, actually. It, I, I, I find it amusing, and, and it's nice to see Eddie and Richard Pryor together. But yeah, it's common knowledge at this time from published reports, you know, now in the aftermath of the filming, what, 20 years, 30 years, that, yeah, Richard Pryor just took it as a payday. Eddie Murphy really thought this is a way to pay back my idol and put us in a movie together. And actually, you know, Eddie's not a bad director and, and, and a writer, and he didn't do too bad in that aspect. Yeah. And he knew he was smarter enough to fucking support himself with a strong supporting cast. And, you know, all these people that he knew growing up and all those people that are popular on TV, you know, let them, let them say shit they can't say on TV, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> I think the big thing that brings this picture down is that there are no fireworks between Eddie and Richard Pryor, and it looks like a Richard Pryor payday. I mentioned earlier that you know he it was around this period of time where even Richard Pryor he would just show up, do what he had to do, and leave. Yeah, and Hollow Nights. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people really like this, but you know it's I'm not one of them. But I I don't dislike it for Eddie. I just think that. it's not very funny, except for a couple of good lines. It's not a great gangster film. It's not a great period piece. It's just kind of, I don't know, it's there. I'm a, and I'm almost glad he did another 48 hours, because it kind of bounced back with a stronger part for him. Yes, and unfortunately, believe it or not, I had uh, ordered this from where I get these things. Wow, how many weeks ago did I tell you I finished this thing? Like two weeks ago? Mm. That I was ready to do Eddie? And they still haven't sent it. It's still on its way. I'm like, Really? So I did not get to see this one again. Obviously, I saw it back in the 80s or early 90s, but I don't remember it at all. So I'll leave this one to you. Yeah, it's from 1990. 90. Yeah, yeah. so 1990. We have Eddie's Park is Reggie. Nick Nolte's back is Jack Cates. Yo, Nick Nolte. Fucking, so how is that guy still breathing air with the way he smokes? Brian James is back as Inspector Kehoe. Ed O'Ross. <laughs> Ed O'Ross. <laughs> Ed O'Ross from... Uh, Oh, was that the uh, Schwarzenegger movie? Uh, gosh, I can't remember now. Commando. Edo Ross was, uh, oh, the one with Schwarzenegger's at Red Heat. Edo <laughs> Ross, and, and The Hidden. Edo Ross was in The Hidden. Edo Ross was a villain actor who was the best friend of a guy he worked with. And Edo Ross was uh, an amateur prize fighter who was De Niro's understudy. This is a story here, wait. And Edo Ross... <laughs> Wanted to put together a production of uh, Animal Farm Come Lifeboat. So all the animals, you know, the Orwell Animal Farm. Mm-hmm. And then all the animals were on a lifeboat. So I got cast in this. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I still have the script. I got cast in this. I said, what am I doing, a fucking movie actor? I said, I'm not an actor. He said, no, no, man, just read your part. Is this a big part. <laughs> Who were you? City College. No, I, I was wondering, like, you know, what role you had. Thriller. <laughs> Well, they pared it down to like four piece pieces. They they kind of scramped everything in. I got killed and thrown overboard on the makeshift raft <laughs> at at the end of my part. 
but uh, okay. this guy was like Mr. Intensity. He was Mr. Intensity, you know, and, and he had that look. He was in a lot of movies in this time period. And then as he got older, he, he got parts in playing Russians. I saw him in Daredevil not too long ago playing his old fat Russian dude. And I'm like, what's that of your Ross? I have no. Um, <laughs> Is it in season one? I'm still watching that now. Yeah, season one or two, and 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 he was in Kubrick's one Matthew Modine. Uh, oh, uh, Full Metal Jacket was that? Full it? Metal Jacket, yeah. He's, yeah, he's, we he's, talk about that in our Kubrick show. Yeah, yeah, he's he's in that. He's a lieutenant. Yeah, he would email me like Stanley doesn't know anything about sixty music. All he likes is classical music. I I told Stanley I know you. What the fuck does that mean? He's like, can you recommend any good sixties music? Everything I recommend is in the movie, and I got no credit. True story. Wow. I think he mentioned something about that. Years ago, I did, yeah. So anyway, Ed Ross, Andrew Divoff from, what was that, Wishmaster? Uh, Bernie Casey from Gargoyles and uh, the Bond Dr. movie. Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde. <laughs> Mr. Black, yeah, that Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde and the anti-Bond movie, um, Never Say Never, where he played Felix, not Unger. And we covered those in the-, <laughs> the other one. We covered those in our three Bond shows and on our Blocksportation show, of course. And Kitten Natividad is in this. Oh, my like, God. You can't go wrong, right? So, yo, all right, so you haven't seen this. So another 48 hours is more of the brutal, bad, and bad. We don't have a baddie as as, as like we had James Remar or we had uh, Sonny Landham from the previous film. This is like pretty much a sequel sequel, like a picture right after the other picture. But you, hello, you can tell it's like 10 years later, you know, because everybody looks older. Did Eddie just get out of jail and they're supposed to split up the money or something? Yeah, yeah. Eddie, Eddie, got out, Eddie gets out of jail again. He's mad at Nick for, like, not getting him out sooner. And, yo, know, and Nick's doing a, hey, Reggie, you fucking bye, 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 bye. Well, he's not dying of fucking blood cake juices in his mouth from smoking so much. Is he still? Yeah, he's still alive, too. Fucking, fucking. I can't imagine it would be as racist as the first one in 1990. <laughs> yeah, this is even more so. I mean, it's oh just my like. God. It's just like, holy shit. What keeps it going is the juice. Because the juice, what, what does Louis mean by the juice? The juice that when Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte, whether they like or hate each other, they really connect. I'm yeah. surprised they never did another one. They did kind of bounce off each other. I'll give 48 hours They that. bounce mm-hmm. off of each other really, really well. I hear Walter Hill's a complete fucking mess now. He's doing like directed DVD shit. And they're just like giving him like here's a five dollar budget, go out to Texas and come back with a movie. <laughs> um, but you know, I I would love, I wouldn't be surprised because Eddie Murphy seems to be reviving a lot of stuff. But Nick is older. The time I saw Nick, he was in uh, one of those. Uh, uh, what's that guy? Uh, Gerard. Gerard, you? No, not that guy. <laughs> the 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 other. The I figured two old guy. fat guys. The, no, the the bovine alcoholic action guy. London, London Falls, London, London. Okay. I'll get to it later. He played his father one of those recently, about two years ago. I'm like, wow, Nick is like this bearded old grizzly guy whose voice, Nick's voice is shot. And I was like, (laughs) like Randy Quaid. (laughs) No, worse. Like, you need subtitles now. But uh, anyway, the still alive Brian James is actually the killer Mm -hmm. at this point. Yeah, I know. Don't, let's not even get into it. It's it's not that bad. It's a sequel, and uh, Boomerang's not. Yes, uh, this is actually surprisingly good. I wasn't expecting that. 1992 Boomerang. He's also the writer on this one. You gotta get rid of the cherries and lose the banana. Cherry and banana, but that's a little Buñuel, a little Dali, you know. 
This was no sausages in this one. Black Panther comic writer Reginald Hudlin, also programming director at BET at the time, and the man behind the first house party with Kid and Play, pulls together a literal who's who of 90s black exploitation notables with a few veterans to boot. Sometimes I feel like there's a whole world out there we don't know about. Like the shit you read about in Penthouse? You know, stuff like that never happens to me. Just check out this cast list. Martin Lawrence, Chris Rock, Chris Jones, Jeffrey Holder of Live and Let Die from our trio of Bond shows, and all those old 7-Up ads. Oh, crispy clean and no caffeine. <laughs> Eartha Kitt, Holly Berry, even Mike Tyson's ex, Relvin Givens. Bitches never do that to me, man. Maybe it's because you call them bitches all the time. You shouldn't have to blow your own horn. You should leave that for someone else to do. An aging Eartha Kitt proves she's still just as much the limber dancer as when she was on Mission Impossible, which we discussed in our show on that TV and film series. In a cringe-inducing bedroom scene, she later delivers the immortal corporate hallway conversation standby, I'm not wearing any panties. Grace Jones, in full dom gear, takes off her skimpy lace panties in front of a boardroom of execs and rubs her odious snatch in some guy's face. Holly Berry, when she was still a fresh-faced ingenue before charging a million a tit and fronting the immortal classic Catwoman, goes on a date with In Living Color's gender-fluid David Allen Greer, but winds up falling for Eddie in the end. Man, Valor, I don't believe this. You're gonna turn down a pussy like this, starting you smack in the face? No man can turn down this pussy. <laughs> so proclaims Diva of Divas Grace Jones, Vito Akil, Conan the Destroyer, and Vamp, during a quiet public dinner among the champagne set, and if anyone can say those lines and make you believe it, it's her. You're not gay, you just don't want to fuck me. N'empabese. <laughs> Even Slip pulled up to the bumper amidst one of her scenes. I hear a girl at the office got you pussy whipped. Why don't you reverse it? Whip that pussy. Your parents have been smoking a joint in my bathroom? No, man, they've been in there fucking. Despite this being the most crass locker room take on an ostensible rom-com scenario ever lensed, at core it still is one, with a lesson most guys figure out by their 20s, namely that the, quote, hot girl we all chase after maybe will be fun in the sack, but you wouldn't want to settle down with her. And one that's been a close supportive friend may well be the one you've really been looking for. Of course, when said through our next door is a knockout. Besides, if you're in love with that woman, what are you doing here with me? Exactly. As someone who has kind of lived at least that much of the story here, I kind of enjoyed this one, though it's hardly the sort of film you want to revisit often. And Martin Lawrence and Chris Rock are as fucking annoying as ever. How the hell those two assholes get popular again? But otherwise, I did like this film a lot. I was surprised I actually wound up liking it. Don't mess with Chris Rock. I like Chris. <laughs> uh, no, no, I, I pretty much agree with you. Did you see I uh, Grace Jones uh, recently came out of retirement and did a couple shows? No, I saw a documentary on her recently. No, no, look at my page. My pages for the last week or two. She came out and did like a show. And nice. seventy-two years old. She's Grace Jones. And <laughs> no changes. Else like her. <laughs> There's nobody else like for her. Better yeah, or worse. She she came out there in this tight fitting like I hope you use Summer's Eve kind of thing. You know, like <laughs> it was tight. And and yeah, she she was. <laughs> This is one of those shows. Um, <laughs> yeah, Eartha Kitt, like, so, and you give me shit for Barbara Bain, and you want to do Eartha Kitt. I don't want to do her. I was just amazed. No, was like, no. She was like a fucking gymnast. She puts out her legs. I'm like, holy shit, this is the legs of like a 20-year-old gymnast. And she's like, you know, 70. <laughs> yeah, it's Eartha Kitt's 70, and you want to do her, but like I mentioned Barbara Bain, I think she's sexy. Like, I said it was no. a cringe-inducing bedroom scene. Come on. No. <laughs> Well, aren't most anyway? Next movie. <laughs> so anyway, and I will say also that watching Boomerang made me pull out my Grace Jones collection. I was listening to a whole bunch of albums recently. 
1992, The Distinguished Gentleman. Famed lush Kevin McCarthy of the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers was being thrown occasional bones around his time, getting bit parts in films like Piranha, The Howling, 80s teen sex comedy My Tudor, and his best role, Ghoulies 3, Ghoulies Go to College. And he appears here alongside the annoying Jim Rockford himself, James Garner, and our man Joe Don Baker, who we did an entire show on. Jonathan Lynn, whose limited credits include such classics as Clue, Nuns on the Run, and the amusing but stupid My Cousin Vinny, voice on us an Eddie, who's a half-assed con artist, whose latest get-rich-quick scheme involves running as the recently deceased Garner, who literally fucks himself to death with a hot blonde, as they have nearly the same name, and he has the foresight to see post-2016 politics as a con game, where nobody pays any attention to candidates or their platforms, just voting based on name recognition. Ahem. Of course, he wins, <laughs> of course, only to change his spots when he realizes just how corrupt and shitty a post-Citizens United Washington really is, and how important issues like health and safety regulations, environmental reform and global warming, and revoking Citizens United before it was even enacted mind, become difficult, if not impossible, to pass when everyone's a whore for big-dollar corporate cash and influence. I am doing this for my grandmother and about a million other people you wouldn't give a shit about. When he tries to actually change things for the better so that government finally goes back to serving the people like it was originally intended, he gets slammed and screwed over by corrupt insiders before he blows the whistle, and despite getting kicked out of Congress for being a reformed con man, he intends to run for president in response. It ain't funny in the least, but damn, these folks really foresaw the future, huh? Eddie shows he can actually do a few good accents by changing his voice and tonality as he tries to appeal to the Jewish, black, Asian, and white communities in turn, and talks his way through complete ignorance of the issues and focused speaking engagements by half-quoting and conflating famous presidential speeches and fast-talking a lot of bullshit that he can't be held to, like at the Poultry Producers Convention, where he says absolutely nothing about them and their concerns and effectively throws it back to them to guide the narrative. There's also a brief shot at the NRA crowd when he's exhorted to show he likes hunters and sporting, accompanying a bunch of assholes who fire AK-47 on a duck hunt, but while Eddie himself can be quite charming and likable on screen, and even in some of the worst stinkers, is that really any reason to sit through a bad movie? It's only of worth it if you haven't figured out how Republicans keep getting into office. This one may give you a big flashing clue. Yeah, actually, I wonder if it was a prescient film, 1992, and I wonder if it was a looking forward kind of movie, because you look back on it, and it actually works much, much better yeah, now. now than it ever did before. It's supposed to be a comedy then. People probably thought it was far-fetched. It's like, no, we lived through this, and we're still living through it. Yeah, well, it's not so much a comedy. It's one of those, like, wrong is right by, uh, you know, with that movie of Robert Carman. It's one of those movies that are billed as comedies, but they're not really. They're, they're I don't know what the hell are they called nowadays. Social satire? I don't know. Social satire, yeah. And it's great, it's great to see James Garner, you know, Rockford Files and all these wonderful family-friendly movies having a heart attack and dying while he's fucking his secretary yeah that's the way to go yeah exactly uh, that's where i want to go and she was smoking hot too so it reminded me why i used to love blondes <laughs> and jonathan lynn was you know he's a british filmmaker who who did some unusual kind of pictures and nice to see something a little strange so uh 1994 beverly hills cop 3 yeah Eddie's old frenemy, John Landis, returns for this to-date final entry in the series, which by this point is down to starring folks like John Saxon, who we did a show on, and at this point in his career he was relegated to a recurring role in the Nightmare on Elm Street films. Pepper with jokey film insider casting, blink and you'll miss odd choices like TNA film and Andy Sidaris regular Julie Strain, R&B crooner Al Green, Nightwing director Arthur Hiller, George Lucas, special effects master Harryhausen, New Jack Blaxploitation director John Singleton of Boys in the Hood, Poetic Justice, and Too Fast, Too Furious, and Barbe Schroeder of Maitrez. 
Hector Elizondo of Take and Pell 123, an 80s teen sex comedy private resort, and Anna Nicole Smith co-star Joey Travolta. Seriously, he was the co-lead in one of the only two shitty action films she ever starred in, playing more of a part. It's the same tired story again with Axel fucking up a bus, which this time gets his boss killed, only to run afoul of the feds who are also working on the same case. It's crystal clear that A, it's not the 80s anymore, and B, that this movie loses every bit of cheery 80s buddy cop film style goofiness in favor of a turgid, downbeat, and drab looking picture whose height of comedy is dressing Eddie up in a Disney style costume and having him A, fight with bratty kids, and B, try to pick up a coworker while still wearing it. Oh ho ho, what a side splitter. The others were no masterworks of modern cinema to say the least, but this one just plain sucks. Well, personally, I don't think it's as bad as a lot of people and you think. <laughs> um, yeah, it's got a weird fucked up cast. Uh, it was like, <laughs> yo, uh, John Landis, well, we know who, who did coke with John Landis, right? Because John <laughs> Landis is known to be a famous coke guy, so we had... John Singleton is a fireman. Yes, that John Singleton. <laughs> George Lu- Lucas. Arthur Hiller. They're really too fucking old to be doing drugs. Ray Harryhausen. No words to be said there. The Sherman brother. You know, and <laughs> uh, you mentioned Joey Travolta, but <laughs> I always thought Stephen McCarty was kind of weird. Um, Alan Young, the, the fucking talking horse thing. You know, TV show. My friend, not Flicker, but the other thing. So, yo, it's cool to see after all these years, John Saxon get a part as like a bad guy. You know, and, and the thing with John Landis, he he likes to make entertaining movies that play up to, you know, he, he's like a famous monstrous kid. And he likes to make entertaining action movies that play up to his, Al Green is in this fucking thing. Al Green. Bad Al Green. And, um, so John Lance likes to, to play up these. You know, he's a famous monsters kid. He likes to play up the things that influenced him as a kid. And, you know, he's, he's one of these never-aging kids. And, you know, this is post-Twilight Zone. We're not going to go there. Um, yeah. The movie he directed. Uh, so this was a big thing for Eddie. He had a couple of problems, John Landis, after the Twilight Zone movie. Mm-hmm. And Eddie... For obvious reasons. Yeah, for various reasons. And Eddie kind of said, like, we'll put you as director of this picture. But apparently they didn't get along, which is weird because they already worked not too long ago together. Um, the cast is pretty much the same as the other pictures, but we have just oddball filler. What was that, John? Oh, Innocent Blood. Innocent Blood, that John Landis movie. That fabulous, hot, sexy French woman. Empire Yo? Yes. Shut up. You know, I didn't really care for it. Even though La Femme Nikita is technically a better movie than Point of No Return, I'd rather watch Bridget Fonda in that role. <laughs> no, 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 no. Empire Yo. Oh. Innocent Blood was like, close the door. And I like French girls. <laughs> no, no, she's so hot in that. And Dario Argento's in that. Come on. <laughs> no, but that was a movie where I thought Landis really nailed the insanity of his life. Don Rickles is the vampire-leading mafia Don? Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> we should do a Don John Landis show one day. <laughs> this doesn't work. It would cement the divide between Eddie and John Landis for a long time. Yeah. I don't know if it's ever been re- repairable. 
But Eddie went down a deep, dark hole with the next fucking picture, which I did yeah. love. Now, I was not able to see this one recently, but I remember it from a long time ago. We might have touched on it vaguely while you were talking about it. In our uh, No, we didn't do a Wes Craven show, did we? We did Toby Hooper. So, yeah, Wes Craven is actually the guy behind this. And this guy, you know, he did stuff like, what do you do, People Behind the Stairs and stuff like that? I mean, yeah. you know, a lot of films like A Deadly Friend. Last House on the Left. Yeah. yeah. He's known for kind of gritty, disturbing, mainstream horror slash slasher films and here he's doing this film that apparently everybody said this and it was in the cast even it was bizarre because Eddie was playing it like it was a horror film like he was Blackula you know doing the William Marshall bit even though he had like long ridiculous hair and it just I don't know it just doesn't work and the film was kind of shot very dark and oddly as I recall it wasn't really what you would expect at all whereas other people in there were told, oh, yeah, treat this as a comedy. So it's, it has a very disjointed tone, and people hated this film. <laughs> but I don't remember it that well, because the last time I saw it was probably, you know, 1997 or something like that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a problematic movie. I think they produced by, story by Eddie, produced by Eddie, uh, screenplay by Eddie's brother. I think he wanted to make something close to Blackula. Yeah. So, you know, he figures, let me look around, Wes Craven, you know. Hills Have Eyes, that part of Wes Craven, you know, and Nightmare on Elm Street, Wes Craven, you know, we can make this work. And I, I think to to be perfectly honest, I think this was like they presented this to the studio and was like, you're Eddie Murphy. Why are you making this shit? <laughs> you know, and I think Eddie wanted to make something that he grew up with, yeah. like a black little type picture, you know? And it could have worked if they had done it like that and if it was better, I hate to say cinematography, but just the, the lensing was really too dark and odd. It was almost like a pastel. Yeah, yeah, it just didn't work. And, you know, Angela Bassett's fine, but we didn't really get that much of a strong supporting cast. A lot of, some people were recognized and some we didn't. You know, majority of the cast like, okay, all right. <laughs> and one of the pitfalls was uh, they lost a, uh, a stunt woman due to a huge fall and she passed, you know, she died. Ooh. So the you know production got shut down for a while, and so that was a that was a bitch. And when it came out, Eddie was like, "I love horror movies. I'm a big fan of Wes Craven, and he wanted to make it as a tribute to what he liked about horror movies. You know, like who knew Eddie Murphy really? That's cool. And at the same time, like you know, you gotta remember, you are one of the biggest comedians on the earth, famous." your studio is not going to let you do this. So after a lot of studio tampering, and I bet reshoots, this came out to be what it was. And it was just like... Kind of a mess. <laughs> a mess. Nobody liked it. And his next picture, Eddie Murphy fans hate what the whole world loved. Exactly. This film started his complete downgrade in uh, quality. I mean, it's not consistent, but really this is kind of like the jump the shark moment. And yet, it's probably made him millions, and it's still making him millions, because he did the fucking Nutty Professor for uh, Disney, I believe it was. If it's not Disney, it certainly feels like a Disney film. Uh, Universal. Universal. It's the first of his fat suit comedies, where he plays just about every role in the cast, and you know, blows himself up like, you remember when those guys, was it the Wayne Brothers, did that horrible white chicks? Mm. Where they pretended that, you know, they put all the makeup on, and all of a sudden they were, like, supposed to be white girls. And they, they were really... ugly white girls. You wouldn't ugly fuck white them. Girls, yes. Yeah. Do you remember when you were young, and your buddies would say, would you fuck those ugly white girls? And you would say, no, no, that's wrong. That's wrong. And then you see your buddies the next day, and they said, wow, those ugly white girls, they, they did all kinds of shit for me. You missed out. And you say, no, that's wrong. That's wrong. I don't want to hear about it. They said, you know what those ugly white girls did? 
And you're like, no, that's wrong. That's wrong. <laughs> so, you know, my drummer used to say, some guys will stick their dick in a stump and hole in a tree. And well, unfortunately, he was one of them. <laughs> this is the true story of my teenage years into my 20s and early 30s. Wow. <laughs> I met people like that. Like, gee, she looks like a nice girl. No, man, it's, it's wrong. I would say, it's wrong. It's wrong. <laughs> and then you see my buddy the next day. I fucked her and a roommate. <laughs> I'm like, dude, what's wrong with you? <laughs> exactly. So anyway. So anyway, that's all I have to say. This is going to be a legendary show. We might get banned from all on that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so anyway. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll just ignore that now <laughs> otherwise. Uh, and it's sequels. So next up in 1997, he does Metro. Give my fucking car, man. You want hardtop or convertible? Oh, wait. Okay. We we finished the Nutty Professor. Yeah, unless you need to talk more about it. Oh, it's was coming. Oh, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> well, that was it. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it's based on the Jerry Lewis famous film. Which already sucked. And Jerry Lewis actually got a credit. Nice. You know, Eddie plays Sherman, a.k.a. Buddy Love, which Jerry Lewis did so much better. Yeah, and I don't even like Jerry Lewis films, but you're right. He definitely did it. He pulled off more professionally. <laughs> That, uh, Jerry Lewis is fucking phenomenal in this in his Nutty Professor movie. That's all I got to say. And um, shut. And, <laughs> and, and Jerry Lewis in France. I don't know. <laughs> no, we didn't do Jerry Lewis. No, oh my no. god, no. I, although no, we did mention him because we did a. There was a movie with Tony Curtis and Dean Martin. I thought Jerry was in that too, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So that was from our uh, Tony Curtis show. We didn't do. Apparently, no. We're gonna stay away from Jerry because you hate Jerry. So. <laughs> Um, no, this is a remake of the Jerry Lewis Nutty Professor. It's but oddly enough, just a tremendous business. Like, who's to tell fucking what's good or not? <laughs> well, that's a really low bar if you think this film is good. But go ahead. No, I, I, I just saying like those who like. I'm one of the people who like Jerry Lewis's Nutty Professor. You shut up. And but. The idea that he was redoing this and it was just not working. But to those people who didn't see the 1965 film, this was like something all new and they loved it. So it worked. So, all right, good for Eddie. And I know little kids love it, that's for sure. <laughs> so, Metro. Yes, 1997 Metro. Give me my fucking car, man. You want a hardtop or convertible? Hardtop. Manual or automatic. He catches the perp's reflection in the mirror, turns around, shoots him in the head. Yep. It's a return to action comedy from Eddie, clearly trying to reinvigorate his old Beverly Hills cop persona with a whole hell of a lot more Bruce Willis and Die Hard tagged in for good measure. Big doofy Michael Rappaport, whose only notable credit was Big Stan in the Bridget Fonda LaFemme Laquita remake, Point of No Return, which I just mentioned, and cute Brit Carmen and Jogo of that terrible Avengers remake from our Sean Connery show, and who bears the unfortunate distinction of having been married to the disgusting Tricky, remember him? are the big names in this low-budget yawn fest. This is your ride. Oh, come on, man. Who am I, Red Fox? I can't roll on no shit like that. What's up, Stan? Eddie is a professional hostage negotiator. Yes, they apparently have these on some major metropolitan police forces. He goes off book to get revenge over the murder of his former partner. He manages to nail the guy during a failed jewelry heist, but he pulls a John Gotti and orders a hit on Eddie's girlfriend, Ajogo. When that fails, he breaks out and kidnaps her himself, winding up in a final confrontation where Eddie shoots him in the leg and jams the door shut and gas pedal to the floor of his truck, which rams into a convenient pile of explosives. Gee, I wonder who left those just laying around the docks. End credits. Well... 
it's obvious that Eddie was trying to revitalize a career that stalled badly come the 90s. And yeah, the diehard films were big business back then, but the difference is, as much of a doofus as he is, Bruce Willis was a hell of a lot more likable and believable as a much put upon cop come de facto action hero than Eddie, for all his charm in those days, ever was or could be. It's one hell of a jump from Beverly Hills Cop in 48 hours, as entertaining as those films could be, to Die Hard in its sequels, which is a very different ballgame, and not one Eddie was ever qualified to take a turn at bat in. It sucks. It's not a painful suck like anything whatsoever he delivered in the new millennium, but it sucks pretty bad. I don't think it sucks. I think it's okay. Uh, one, one of the weird things is that uh, it's, uh, <laughs> Michael Wincott is a villain. And uh, poor Michael Wincott, you know, he's forever remembered, unfortunately, as the guy had the gun with the wadding that killed Brandon Lee and the crow shooting. And Michael Wincott passed a few years back. But... Uh, yeah, it's he had a very distinctive deep bass voice. <laughs> so it's kind of weird because I sometimes rewatch The Crow and it's, it's a pretty good movie. You know, Michael Wincott, like, where the fuck did they find that guy with that voice? You know, you know it was like I took aquarium and gravel, chewed it down my throat, shit it out, and spit it out. You know, like, wow, what a voice. You know, here he's a couple of years later trying to, like, catch ground as an actor you know that's what he does and michael rapaport i have a lot of respect for because he's a totally anti-trump guy and he posts on facebook all the time fuck that guy fuck that guy fuck that guy he'll go on he'll even do live facebook things <laughs> yeah you gotta follow michael rapaport he, he might have lost a lot of followers as an actor he's he's out there he's he's out there with like with his speeches and and his what he says if he really is pissed off, he will say shit. Yeah, so. And it's funny, you mentioned Brandon Lee. It's like my favorite Brandon Lee film. I think it was the best one he ever did. was the one with Dolph Lundgren, the buddy cop film, uh, Showdown in Little Tokyo. If you haven't seen that one, it's well worth checking out if you enjoy those kind of films. Yeah, and who was the woman in that? Do you remember that? I don't remember, and I have the film, too. I've seen it like two or three times, but I can't remember. Uh, uh, yeah. It's definitely you watch that, and then you, you say to your wife, don't go to sleep. <laughs> Yeah, I forgot who she was, yeah. but it was like, oh, okay. Right, mm. right. that's true. So, uh, yeah. 98, he starts doing crap. Like, he first he gets his first role doing voiceovers in a Disney film, which was Milan. He did Dr. Doolittle, which is another one of his fat suit jobs. And then he does Holy Man. This film by the guy who gave us Bill and Ted fucked the movie going public in several ways by casting Murphy in a role intended for John Candy, who had died right before filming, and keeping him from making Rush Hour into a potentially acceptable film rather than saddling us with the obnoxious Chris Tucker, which was a role intended for Murphy. Filled with cameos of more interest in the film itself, including SCTV and Cannibal Girls' Eugene Levy, Betty White, James Brown, Soupy Sales, Florence, Mayor Lindsay Gave Me Crabs, Henderson, Annoying Edie McClurg and Bitchy Morgan Fairchild, Family-Friendly Z-Grader Stephen Herrick, Dumps Pretty in Pink's Ducky John Cryer, Psycho 2's Robert Loggia, Spellbinder star and John Travolta spouse Kelly Preston, and our man Jeff Goldblum of Invasion of the Body Snatchers and the Sentinel from our Donald Sutherland and Satan in the 70s shows, into this atrocity mocking home shopping networks and American media marketing. Goldblum is the ad exec come head of promotions at the low-end garage sales slash Franklin Mint of a, quote, network whose sales are down the last quarter, so the typically cutthroat board of directors bring in press and they shake things up. While they work out a long corporate rivalry slash romance, Insteps crazy person Eddie Murphy, who's essentially Bunuel Simon of the Desert turned Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, a crackpot aesthetic who causes a massive rating spike by wandering on set and saying crazy shit during filming. 
His pop psychology and erratic behavior is so popular with viewers and network, they wind up taking him on and promoting Goldblum. In the end, the two realize that they're in love, and Eddie, realizing he's sold out, leaves. Whoopee. This had its slight potential, like a comedic update of the much savvier Looker, which we discussed in our Michael Crichton show, but the script sucks, the direction is lackluster and flat, and Murphy simply isn't funny. Candy, at least in his SCTV heyday, would have brought a blustery anarchy to the role, like his dissolute, hard-living take on Mr. Wizard-style kids shows, but that's simply not Murphy, and his heart clearly isn't in it. It just sucks. Yeah, despite a really interesting cast and the Sephardi cast, this doesn't work. I'm not sure whose idea this was. (laughs) You know, at times, Eddie Murphy and Jeff Goldblum actually do work well together and uh, and apart. And so, but just like, yeah, no. (laughs) And this is one of the... You know, he hit gold with Nutty Professor, and this picture was a huge fucking bomb. Yeah. This was like and, his, uh, um, what's that, Mike, uh, what's his name, Mike Myers film, The Love Guru. This was like his love yeah. guru. <laughs> right, after all those really fun, and yeah, I'm going to make entertaining Austin Powers pictures. The third one, not so much, but yeah, he goes and does something like The Love Guru, and like, Michael who? Yeah. And it's like, like you said, I loved him in the two Wayne's World films. I loved him in So I Married an Axe Murderer. I loved the first Lost and Powers film. Okay, the later ones with, you know, Fat Bash and all the fart jokes were kind of lame. But what the hell was he thinking? <laughs> it like, killed his career. So this one didn't kill Eddie's, but it's pretty bad. Um, no, but, but Eddie, Eddie likes to do career suicide, so next is life. Yeah, I did not see life. Uh, do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah, a, a not well look. This is Ted Demi picture, so a not looking well Eddie. I don't know what is going on. This is prison picture. Takes place in the early 30s. Must be like this, these blues, blues aficionados who want to become baseball players. The kind of thing you would do in the 70s. Yeah. And it was done in the 70s. Martin Lawrence has a, a part. Ned Beatty, before he died, is in this. Bernie Mac. Clarence Williams III. Odd Squad. Bokeem, Woodbine. You know, there's a couple of familiar faces. There's a lot of unfamiliar faces. <laughs> Rick James is in this. Rick. <laughs> Out. And, but it's it just, I don't know. It's just like. But it did well at the box office for some reason. But being that it was a bizarro throwback movie to something that was done in the late 70s, and particularly in black exploitation films. <laughs> I don't know what to say about this movie because it's one that really doesn't stick in your mind. You know, it's you know these these two guys in prison are, are recognized by baseball player talent scouts to be the next big thing they fuck up they keep going back to jail it's just i don't know it's like by this time period are people are really paying attention to this kind of shit and then there's bow finger mm-hmm. and that's actually better than it should have been too 1999 bow finger Bert from Sesame Street and director of all four Muppet movies and The Dark Crystal, as well as the man behind one of my worst theatrical experiences, What About Bob? Remind me to tell you the story behind that one. Frank Oz, who on the plus side also gave us the likable Steve Martin Goldie Hawn comedy House Sitter and the voices of Cookie Monster and Animal, delivers something of a mid-level flop about the vagaries of low-budget filmmaking within Hollywood circles. Steve Martin is a low-rent, would-be Hollywood producer-slash-agent who, following that hoary old adage, fake it till you make it, so beloved of truck stop waitresses and star dancers, Broadway types of musicians, 
bullshits his way into a major contract with big-time mogul Robert Downey Jr. back in his long stint with the Sniffy and riding the horse days, and well before he became a lowball mm-hmm. rogue with the Iron Man films. This is just another example of the white man taking all the best catchphrases and giving them to Arnold or Stallone or Van Damme and Jackie Chan, and he can't even speak English good. When he tries to cast action hero Eddie as the lead in his bizarre new sci-fi action project, it turns out that he's a member of a thinly-veiled and farless malicious Scientology analog run by General Zod, Terrence Stamp, also Toby Dammit in the best Fellini does Mario Bava sequence of Spirits of the Dead from our Bridget Bardot and Peter Fonda shows, where they go around in paper hats and stand by the important mantras, There is no giant foot trying to squash me, and keep Mr. Weenie in the pants. Heel before Zod. Apparently, Eddie is a huge X-Files fan, but he's convinced fucking aliens are real and out to get him, which drives the rest of the narrative. Scam artist Martin decides to film Eddie reality TV style, convincing his small crew, which is limited to cameraman swiping studio equipment Jamie Kennedy, a bit player from two episodes of the likable Saved by the Bell knockoff California Dreams, plus Tom Hanks' wife Christine Baranski of Mamma Mia fame, and weird-looking pop-eyed Heather Graham of the two Corey's epic License to Drive, and all too typical Hollywood type who plays a social-climbing skank who pretends to be a virgin but jumps into bed with Dave and Steve Martin for the job and only pretends to have any issues getting naked on screen. Yeah, never saw that type before. That Eddie is simply method acting, so don't expect him to interact with them outside of their scenes. As a result, all these people keep following him around and surprising him, talking all this insanity about aliens and referring to him by another name, which sets off his spaceman panic. He gets a stunt double for the, quote, action scenes, like running across the busy freeway and providing the bouncing ass for the sex scene, and it all seems to be going off his plan until Stamp susses it all out. But they blackmail him by threatening to send footage they filmed of Eddie with a bag over his head flashing his dick at the Laker cheerleaders, which would take all well, the money he's been sinking into the kinder, gentler Scientology scam. The final film airs to great success, and they wind up making a legit action film with Eddie as a result. Well, you can say it was an amusing plot, and Martin Murphy and Baranski definitely throw themselves into their parts, which amps up the intrinsic absurdity of the whole affair. And I have to admit, the one scene where the dumpy accountant comes screenwriter punks the local cops who pull Eddie over by starting to melt and scream about aliens dissolving his gonads as his fake arm falls off, that actually did get a real laugh out of me. Like Boomerang, it's no classic for the ages, but for a 90s Murphy film when his career was really going down the tubes, it's not half the failure on all levels kiddie shit like the Professor films were. Yeah. <laughs> I I don't know. I, I hated this shit when I saw it the first time. And I watched it again for the show. Mm-hmm. I still fucking hate it. It's, it's, a, it's just like, no, no, you know. He's a very talented guy. Everybody's talented. Frank Oz is talented. Steve Martin, Eddie Murphy, Heather Graham, you know, after she did the uh, Boogie Nights, mm-hmm. you know, her career was shot. But, you know, not for her fault. Terrence Stamp, Robert Downey Jr., you know, was crawling his way back before he did. Barry Newman. You know, there's a lot of good people in this, familiar faces. But it's just, like, no, I, I, I didn't like this. And I know what to make of it. And I watched it again for this program. And I'm like, no, I still don't like it. You know, <laughs> this is a side note. We were talking about Sojourn in Little Tokyo before. And you're talking about the hot girls in it. Guess who it was? Tia Carrera from Wayne's World, uh, I guess it was two. <laughs> yeah, that this is pre-Botox Tia. Yeah, back when she did Playboy, <laughs> before she got a career. <laughs> no, I, I I saw Tia at a show, and, and we could not hook up uh, a planned uh, Q&A. But I said, hey, we were supposed to do one, I understand, it's okay. Can I get a picture with you? She looked great. 
a year later, she's like, who the fuck is that? <laughs> yeah, she's posting all over Instagram, like, I'm Tia Carrera. You look like a lady that somebody put a fucking... What do you inflate footballs with? What is that, a pump? <laughs> yes. It's like somebody stuck a pump up her fucking cheeks. I don't she, understand she like the whole the Botox same human thing. Being. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. Botox really makes women look weird, and they think it looks... Oh, yeah, look, I stopped aging. Like, you don't look like a human being. You look like fucking Kim Kardashian. <laughs> so, anyway... <laughs> yeah, but you would you would fuck Kim Kardashian, but but not these other people. I don't anyway, know if I could talk. I have to put like a gag in her mouth. Huh? <laughs> anyway. anyway, Nutty Professor Two. Yeah, she does Nutty Professor Two, and he does the voice in Shrek, and he does Doctor Doolittle Two. Yeah, again, I'm, I don't even want to discuss them unless you have something to say. Oh, okay, you're gonna do this to me. Okay, so Nutty Professor Two, the clumps was a pretty <laughs> successful box office. Hit sequel to the Nutty Professor. More of Eddie doing. This is like where he started doing multiple makeup effects, multiple characters. Well, he already did a little bit of that in, uh, I think, Boomerang, definitely in Bowfinger, and it's one of yeah. But here he's done like many, many Shrek. Now you haven't seen Shrek, right? No. It's, it's a very enjoyable Academy Award-winning, cute-ish, weird Disney animation Pixar. film. Yeah. Where Eddie is the voice of Donkey. He's speaking like Eddie. Like, hey, man, come on over here. Mike Myers is Shrek, which is this evil person. Cameron Diaz is the voice of Princess Fiona. Was this, like, ugly princess? But she wasn't always ugly. And, you know, <laughs> you know I, I avoided this thing for forever mm-hmm. until I finally saw it. I said, no, not that bad. <laughs> well, how drunk were you? <laughs> Fine. No, no, was, no, Shrek 2001, I wasn't drinking that badly, no. <laughs> it, it, it's a family kitchen. Kids love this movie. Of and, and you know what? It's not that bad. Dr. Doolittle 2 followed. It was more of the same, shall we say? You haven't seen that, obviously. I'm not even going to go into that. Showtime. Did you see Showtime? Yes, 2002, Showtime. All right, let's go. What crackhead thought this would be a great idea? The annoyingly overpraised, if undeniably talented, perpetual grouch Robert De Niro of Angel Heart from a short rambling show. Overly praised! And about five million awful Martin Scorsese filmic abortions in a buddy cop comedy with a long-past shark jump Eddie Murphy, where Eddie is a beat cop with aspirations to be an actor, and De Niro is a crusty, perpetual grouch who speaks honestly to grade school kids. <gasps> and winds up ruining a camera from a local news crew while trying to catch a perp. As the station threatens a lawsuit, he's busted down to being forced to do one of those lame cops reality shows with Murphy as his new partner. For cute Renee Russo, whose career highs were small parts in the Mick Jagger sub-Michael Crichtonism Free Jack and Lethal Weapon 3 and 4, who provides the only life in this moribund dumpster fire. De Niro proves he couldn't crack a joke if he held a knife to his throat. Eddie hams it up without an audience laugh, and you get bit parts for De Niro's average of best-looking daughter. Think a more hangdog, toothy Sofia Coppola, a pre-beefy Dwayne Wayne from a different world himself, Kadeem Hardison, and that guy most deaf whose crowning achievement was being the only saving grace in that abominable Hitchhiker's Guide remake. Oh, and William Shatner, very openly referencing his midlife crisis run as the beefy T.J. Hooker. 
No credits director Tom Day, whose biggest films are the literal handful he'd done with the Jackie Chan, Lucy Liu shitstorm Shanghai Noon and the CG kids film Marmaduke, proves why nobody in Hollywood wants to greenlight a project with his name attached to it by dropping an Eddie quote comedy without a single laugh and a De Niro film that doesn't give him any room to dominate the rest of the cast with his gravitas and presence. De Niro, it should be noted, was granted honorary Italian citizenship over the strong objections of the Sons of Italy, which my uncle Al was a chapter president of, for denigrating our public image by incessantly portraying us as mobsters. That's exactly what I feel about Scorsese, the little shit. At least in Nero Connect. What's your excuse, Marty? So, there you go. What's your take? We, we are never going to do Scorsese picture. No. You fuck you. I hate it. I hate Martin Scorsese. Fuck you. So, <laughs> that's maybe. what he would say. Ah, fuck you, you cocksucker. Motherfucker. Fuck you, cocksucker. <laughs> I like you're crazy, man. I don't know where you're, all this negative energy comes from. Oh, God, I hate him. I hate those mob films from this country. <laughs> Italian mob films, I'll watch. Those are great. All those Poliziotteschis and shit. But American mob films, I despise the fucking things. I He's hate really the Godfather good. films. He's really good way I hate them. Goodfellas. I, I hate... I, what was that one he did about New York or whatever, or something about America? Oh, I love Goodfellas. You're kidding me? Oh, God, I hate his movies. See, because you never did blow like they did blow in that movie. <laughs> in Scarface? <laughs> no, no, no. No, in Goodfellas. <laughs> the whole scene where the plane can't you hear me knock, and he's driving, he's driving, and he's like, keep snorting, and he's like, and he hears the helicopters. Oh, see, because you know, you know, live it, man. Yeah, so live these movies. So, <laughs> I didn't hit the sniffy hard enough to like him. <laughs> well, there you go. I didn't dislike shit after you went to this whole diatribe against Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese. <laughs> I did not dislike Showtime as much as you did. Thank mm-hmm. right. Most stuff is fine as an actor. You know, yeah, we have shot or whatever. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I mean, I like It's nice to see Eddie not doing the bullshit he usually does, but Pluto Nash nearly killed his career. Oh, God, yes. The Adventures of Pluto Nash, 2002. And now we come to a film nigh universally considered one of the ten worst films ever lens, alongside the venerable Bill Cosby's one-two punch of Ghost Dead and Leonard Part 6. Eddie's attempt to recreate the box office abysmalness of Cosby features fuck-up Trump fanboy Randy Quaid, who appropriately starred in both a TV movie about Jim Jones and Inside the Third Reich, and wastes the talents of our girl Pam Greer, who we devoted a whole show to, former Cory Booker beau and Iron Fist slash Defenders star, and actually she's in the first season of Daredevil as well, cute Rosario Dawson, the monster from Young Frankenstein and Sleazy P.I. from one of my all-time favorite films, the George C. Scott hardcore Peter Boyle, and even Mon- the Python's John Cleese in the sewage-spewing dumpster fire, and I can only imagine it was trying to be another Men in Black, or perhaps even Total Recall of the Fifth Element. Boy, did they ever miss the mark. I wouldn't even bother trying to get into the ridiculous sci-fi world-building involved. I remember a former close friend who flipped out and went Tea Party MAGA on us once, enthusiastically explaining the convoluted gibberish that provide the background of the Riddick films. But the bottom line is, Eddie is a sleazebag who winds up running a bar slash club on the moon and running afoul of mobsters, aliens, and clones. I don't give a shit. This film sucks with a capital S. And I mean, it sucks some major stanky ass. If you really want to punish somebody, lock him in a room with this on loop. Oh my god, this film is the worst. And I'd seen Wonder Part 6, which is really damn close. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I saw Wonder Part 6 too. Wow, that was bad. I don't know what to say about this because I, I tried to watch this 
multiple times over the years. God bless you. And you know, you you you've got a you got an interesting guest. You got Eddie. You got Randy Quaid, real case negligible. Rosario Dawson, who's now a Marvel girl, and okay. you know Jay Moore, who Peter Boyle, <laughs> Luis Guzman, Joe Pantoliano, Pam Greer, John Gleese, Burt Young. I think he's passed. You know, a bunch of people. Uh, Cornelius Sharp. You know, don't forget Cornelius Sharp. Alec Baldwin before he killed somebody. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is going to be a theme in this show. No, I don't mean that to be a cheap shot, but we're never gonna know what the fuck happened. That, yeah. but this was a this was a mega bomb. So, like Lewis, what do you mean mega bomb? Everybody so, hated it. It didn't make any money. <laughs> this is the first movie in the two thousand in the new millennium to cost over one hundred million dollars to not even make ten. But who's to blame? It's like. Um, Okay, so uh, I'm going to try to help people out here. Remember that Hammer movie, Moon Zero Two? And everybody thought it was going to be a great, a great Hammer movie, action movie set in the moon. With Yuta Sensgard, I believe. And, and nobody nobody liked it. Yeah, it was really bad. <laughs> it was really bad, yeah. And so this is kind of like really bad, really bad. But uh, I Spy was a little better. I Spy, 2002. I'm going to do a little favor for the president, some kind of top secret mission or something. You mean like 007? Yeah, except I'm going to be double nine and a half. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Owen Wilson, annoying star of the Dukes of Hazard remake and Jennifer Lopez rom-com Marry Me, is parried up with annoying braggart Walter Waite boxing champion rapper Eddie Murphy in this stinker from a woman whose most notable credits are the Brady Bunch movie and Howard Stern vehicle Private Parts, whose sole claim to fame was providing the only good LL Cool J track, I Make My Own Rules. I don't want to be like Carlos, but I can't help noticing my stuff looks like you can get it from Radio Shack in 1972. As you can imagine, this is an absolute abomination. So bad it makes the Robert Culp-Bill Cosby pairing of the same name and their lousy Hickey and Boggs look like masterworks of modern cinema. <laughs> the only saving grace here is sexy Jean Grey slash Phoenix Famke Jansen as a double agent who flirts with Owens as a glasses bedecked Sundere, tortures Murphy as a hot Russian spy as a test of his feasibility for the mission, and allows herself to be seduced by Owens, Cyrano style by Murphy with the lyrics to sexual healing before trotting her now hoary Xenia on a top persona out for another spin. It's supposed to be amusing. Apparently, Malcolm McDowell of A Clockwork Orange from our Stanley Kubrick show is a wealthy arms dealer who just got his hands on a stealth bomber. As he's also funding Boxer Murphy, the CIA pulls Murphy in as a cover so Owens can infiltrate McDowell's secret auction and save the day. Jansen reveals her true colors, everything gets resolved, end of story. Aside from a few minutes with the always stunning and sexy Jansen, there's absolutely nothing to recommend about this turgid attempt at a Tom Cruise Mission Impossible by way of the far more amusing and entertaining Man from Uncle remake with Henry Cavill. That film was fun. This one just sucks. What's your take? Henry Cavill. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> I like that movie. Nobody ever talks about it. We saw it in the theater. I was like, this is actually good. Oh, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't not, what you expected, but yeah, not only is it good, I've actually watched it not not a lot, but a few times. You know, I got the Blu-ray, and I was like, me too. I was like, every once in a while, you know, like once a year, I pop it out, and like, why didn't they do another one? And then like. Oh, right, your co-star is a fucking psychopath. <laughs> True. It's probably why you didn't do another one. Yeah, we 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 know well now, but I spy. It's where we are, right? You know, Betty Thomas was in that TV show, whatever it was. Uh, uh, wasn't Buddy. <laughs> no, come on. You make my life difficult sometimes, do you? <laughs> 
Betty Thomas was actually an actress in the TV show. Fuck. Keeps coming up my breast. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I think, I think she was on like one of these cop TV shows. They probably think of Betty Thomas. The, uh... Oh, Hill Street Blues. Hill Street Blues. T- eight years. You probably get my breast because the soul singer back when. She was one of those dirty ones like Millie Jackson, Betty Thomas. <laughs> no, no, she was in Hill Street Blues for eight years. So, okay, we got that. We're good. So, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. Where, where did you catch up with Eddie? Did you see anything else? Oh, yeah. I'm going to skip Daddy Daycare, The Haunted Mansion, Shrek 2, and Dream Girls. I know you wanted to cover, but I saw more after this, yes. I wanted to catch, uh, cover Dream Girls. Yeah. Uh, after a couple of years of doing this shit, Bill Condon, who had... Uh, Strangely, did Strange Behavior, Strange Australian film, Strange Invaders, mm-hmm. worked in Chicago screenplay, which is a pretty good movie, a couple other things, and directs Dream Girls. Okay. So this is a very popular Broadway musical. Broadway musical. And so it's like, yeah, I don't know. Do we trust Broadway musical made into theatrical films? Yeah. Movies? Yeah, and this is terrific. This is terrific. Jennifer Hudson, always a good singer, plays a character based on a Supremes member. Uh, Jamie Foxx, pretty much, who's really good in this, plays Barry Gordy. Well, somebody supposed to be Barry Gordy. Beyonce, yeah, that one. She's actually pretty good as like a Diana Ross supposed to be. And there, you know, it goes on and on. So the thing with Eddie Murphy, that that role on Broadway was like amalgam of Jackie Wilson and Marvin Gaye. And and like how he went into deep depression, drug addiction. And he was so good. So good. There's a lot of songs, but oh my God. This was like after years of doing the shit. Eddie Murphy. His character was his character. James Thunder Early. They, you know, they, they had to change these things for, you know. Legal reasons. <laughs> Legal reasons, yeah. Terrific performance. Terrific performance. And this was, uh, everybody who saw this was like, holy fucking shit. This, he's terrific. Wow. There's like a guy in the edge of addiction, a guy in the throes of addiction. You know, all these people coming to sing with him. And he like, he can barely keep his shit together. This is what we all knew about growing up. This is what we all knew about. Really terrific performance. I was like, yeah. And, you know, the... They have the. I mentioned this on the outside of the show. They had the. They always have these things leading up to the big awards. The, you know, Seattle. Who fucking lives in Seattle? <laughs> Grunge man. The Mil, yeah, the Milwaukee Critics Review. Who fucking lives there? And you know, the, the Mississippi River. You know, the New York Film Critics. Okay, that's a big one. And, you know, this one and that one. And everybody's like Eddie Murphy, best actor. Eddie Murphy, best actor. Eddie Murphy, best actor. Fucking Academy Awards come from. They're like, well, Eddie Murphy was a comedian and he did shit movies, so we're not going to nominate him, <laughs> which was wrong. Yeah. Totally wrong. He was terrific in this movie. It was a comeback for him. A comeback. And they fucked him over. Well, you already know my feeling about the Oscars. I've mentioned it many times. We got- no, no, I know. But it wasn't because he was black. It was because... It was because they, they attributed it to he he was a comedian. And I get, you know, the thing is, that a lot of times, you know, we, we spoke of this in and out over 
10, 12 years, comedians aren't thought of as being serious actors. Yeah, and the Oscars are always this hoity-toity shit. I mean, I've, we have a poster down in our laundry room that only goes up to, I think, uh, 1989 or something like that, or even, maybe even earlier. But it does every Oscar winner ever from, like, back to the 20s all the way up to then. And I swear to God, I look at it all the time. I'm like, I, I keep checking myself. There's got to be something else here. There are, like, three or four films on there that I actually not even like. There's, like, one or two that I like. But ones that I'm like, eh, okay, yeah, that wasn't bad. Most of the films suck ass. They've got some kind of weird hoity-toity thing where it's like, oh, this is an actor's film. Oh, look, this was made by a director that is an auteurist, like a, as if he was some kind of European art film or something. But it's all just shit from America. I was like, God, these are terrible movies. Who the hell would want to watch, like, you know, On Golden Pond or something, or Kramer versus Kramer? you got to have a fucking death wish. Who the, I, I'm always wondering, like, how do they nominate this shit? Why is it always movies? that basically I have a thing like okay it was an Oscar winner I'm avoiding that like the plague <laughs> did they hate it oh yeah that's probably a good film <laughs> so, yeah. where, are we, where are we jumping to Howard Tower Heist no believe it or not I actually sat through Norbit uh, which he was also oh. writer and producer on oh crap another black one can't give these away no one ever come and say give me the ugly black one by now, firmly ensconced in his lowbrow fat suit comedy and stupid voices career slump, Eddie delivers yet another atrocity and insult to any thinking adult over the age of four for, you guessed it, DreamWorks. Thanks, Disney. Eddie, who speaks in a retarded version of his old Buckwheat character voice throughout, is a nerd adopted by the owner of a Chinese restaurant. We're supposed to find this hilarious, especially when he talks of having lots of pets, which, true to stereotype, the family hacks up for cooking in front of him, and the friendless orphan gets beaten on by older white kids. He finds a protector in a big, beefy Rasputina, who becomes his de facto girlfriend and eventual wife. Her family, which includes hulking former linebacker and idiocracy co-star Terry Crews, is a bunch of bone breakers running their own local protections racket. Hey, you don't shake me down. I'm Italian. I shake you down. Interview with the vampire's Sandy Newton is Eddie's long-lost love interest. Sleazy Cat Williams is appropriately cast as a pimp. And Boys in the Hood's Cuba Gooding Jr. is Newton's fiancé come co-conspirator and turning Norbert's childhood home-slash-restaurant into a strip bar. Eddie was clearly losing it throughout the 90s, but how things degenerate to the level of a fucking Medea comedy is beyond me. Sure, a lot of modern-day comedies, especially black-oriented ones, are pretty low-bound and crass, but few are as juvenile and unwatchably moronic as the ones Eddie started putting out since hooking up with Disney. Fuck this thing. I couldn't believe it even exists, much less that people watched it. And also then he does Shrek the Third, which I'm not going to talk about either. Yeah, Nor Norbert's a pain in the ass, because... <sighs> And it's racist. I'm like, if you're doing a kid's film, wouldn't you want to keep that shit out of there? <laughs> yeah, it made a lot of money, though. Yeah. I, I don't know how. I mean... Because they want to see Fat Suit Eddie. <laughs> Ooh, the nutty professor. There you go. It's Fat Suit Eddie as a, a black BBW. And, you know, for a guy who who's experienced BBWs in my life, if you ain't got, like, 12, 13, don't bother. <laughs> because, because, like, this shit ain't just, like, it's like, oh, honey, it's not good. It's like, no, you're fucking too big for me. <laughs> Y'all, it's like, somebody's, somebody's got. <laughs> hey, listen, there's, there's like chubby chasers out there, you know, teachers on. <laughs> no, but no, I wasn't a chubby chaser, but I'm just saying from experience that, like, look at, look at, you know, Eddie was good looking in a fat suit, but, yo, as a lady, but, yo, I don't know. <laughs> Surprisingly, people went to see us like, all right, fuck you, you crazy motherfuckers. <laughs> but this just, I don't know. What do you got next? 
believe it or not, beat Dave. <laughs> What's your name? Smell my. Smell my what? Smell my butt crack. I'm sure the other butt cracks would disapprove of your behavior. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that's the level of humor in this atrocity and insult to the celluloid it's printed on. Eddie is once again working a dual role as the alien captain remote piloting an android, quote, spaceship, Eddie, which was sent to Earth to drain the planet's oceans for their salt content, desperately needed on their own planet. Gee, doesn't this sound a whole hell of a lot like Aquaman versus Hydro the Dehydrator from the planet Exodoom from those old power records in the 70s? Now my planet is doomed, but our planet is safe thanks to you, Aquaman, and to you, my beautiful queen. Yeesh. This story is once again really convoluted and stupid, where the android Eddie is really trying to retrieve said ocean-draining device from this bratty kid whose fish tank it landed in and sucked up all the water from. Of course, he gets involved with her mother, Jennifer Lawrence's trainer sponsor from the Hunger Games, Elizabeth Banks, and I think she's actually also a shitty game show host now for uh, To Tell the Truth or something. Uh, one of those shows, I don't know. And finding out that not all humans are soulless MAGA monsters, but rather than end this film inside of a half hour or less, they have to make all sorts of complications among the aliens who include the annoying and rather short edge pitch man Kevin Hart and late-season sister-sister character Gabrielle Union. While it may not be the same level as unwatchable shit as Pluto Nash, that's about as low a bar as you can possibly set. If only they'd take all the money blown on complete trash like this and invested it in green initiatives like nationalized wind and solar power or New Deal-style projects that actually help everyday people, we'd have a much better and healthier nation rather than dumpsters full of crap like this. Unbelievable that this thing exists. He keeps doing it. It's terrible. I, I have no other words to say besides it's terrible. Yeah. So he does some more crap. There's something called Imagine That. He did a documentary about black comedians on black comedy. He did Shrek Forever After. And then he does Tower Heist, which you had mentioned. He's also the producer on this one. Sadly, rather realistic tale of a building full of everyday workers who find their pensions wiped out by their boss's naive investment of Sam into a Bertie Madoff-style Ponzi scheme. Ben Stiller of uncredited Alan Dean Foster's to the Vanishing Point remake Highway to Hell is the stupid boss who did it. Alan Alda of Canadian Bacon and the Mephisto Waltz from a Jackie Bissett show is the Madoff slash Michael Milken analog who has one of Steve McQueen's cars in his penthouse apartment. Lady Hawk and Ferris Bueller star and wife of the domineering Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick Taxi's annoying Judd Hirsch and nasty domineering husband of whiny X-Files star David Duchovny Tia Leone remake queen of the shittier millennial versions of Goodbye Charlie from a Tony Curtis show and fun with Dick and Jane from a George Siegel show all take part in this doofy heist film and supposed comedy from disgraced X-Men 3 and Rush Hour series director Brett Ratner two major strikes against him just from those apparently it was originally an Eddie Murphy project planned as an all-black heist film where they rather more appropriately take Trump Tower oh if only it's not funny not exciting and more than a tad depressing given all the regular folk built here whose big paycheck involves getting pieces of the destroyed and dismantled Steve McQueen car yeah because they're going to get so many tens of thousands of lost dollars back selling the carburetor or a bumper from a car that somebody claims belonged to a long dead actor I'm still shaking my head here why does this exist again yeah <laughs> it's okay it's, it's not what you expect from Eddie Murphy at this point in time, and you know, it's got interesting cast. You know, Eddie Murphy, Ben Stiller, Casey Affleck, Alan Alda, yes, that fucking bastard. <laughs> Matthew Broderick, Ted Hirsch, Tiona Leone, we all remember her. Michael Payne, you know, there's good people there. Um, 
I thought it was kind of dry. I, I thought it was like, hey, maybe this could be like an Eddie Murphy comeback vehicle. It was a little harder. You know, I, I, I have no shame in saying I recently, this is no relation to anything, and we never did a Jackie Chan show, to my knowledge, no, do we? No, we did not. Everybody, you know, for Halloween, everybody's watching horror movies. I always watch horror movies. Exactly. And it's like, oh, Halloween comes once a year. I'm like, Halloween, every day is Halloween, like Ministry once said. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no kidding, folks. Yeah, you know, I watched you my know. my old hippie buddy Barry said that a long time ago. I'm like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> no, I, I I got all these box sets. I got all this old stuff. I got all the new stuff from Severin, the Vinegar Syndrome. I'm always watching stuff that you guys don't know about. Can I don't always post it? But I watched Rush Hour one, two, and three. Oh God, help you. Yes. <laughs> and Rush Hour one and three are not bad. And, you know, Jackie Chan, uh, Chris Rock films. And, and um, well, not Chris Rock, the other one. Chris Tucker. Chris Tucker, I'm sorry. Folks, Even worse. Me. <laughs> no, Chris Tucker's fine. He's supposed to be all this an- animosity between them behind the scenes, but they work well together on screen. And all the outtakes show that, like, they're not killing each other. And Brett Ratner, <laughs> so Brett Ratner was this director we did these Jackie Chan movies, got to a height of fame, but Brett Ratner had this thing for Indonesian and Thai boys, <laughs> which apparently everybody in Hollywood knew about, but nobody would do anything about. So Tower Heist comes out as this uneven effort. Brett Ratner directed the Freddie Mercury Queen movie. Oh, that was terrible. Yeah. Which I enjoyed. Fuck you. Uh, <laughs> Which I thought was very good, but Brett Ratner was re- removed from the film because they found all these Thai boys in his trailer all the time. <laughs> like, so Brett uh, Ratner is a who's persona. Like Singer? <laughs> yeah, he's like a persona non grata in Hollywood, Hollywood right now. Interesting story. I could actually send you stuff about Brett Ratner. And yeah, he worked on some of the X-Men movies. So um, this movie, Tower Heist, I said fuck you affectionately, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> this movie, Tower Heist, I, I, I hoped it would be fun. Like, the posters were cool. The trailer was cut well. You know, as most are. Yeah. It just didn't really work. And it's just like, it was weak. Um, I did like Mr. Church. Did you see that? I did not see that. A Thousand Words or Dolomite. I know you want to mention that, so. Yeah, Mr. Church was a uh, directed by Bruce Berford. Bur- Australian director, very low-key film. It's about a woman who grows up with the uh, African-American guy who's in the household, and he grows old with them, and he takes care of everybody in the household. And uh, he's like the guy who's always there. He's the, the guy you listen to. You know, sometimes he gets a little buzzed, gives you a, a peace of mind of the world as it is. Very good role for Eddie Murphy. Unfortunately, it's a film that was very little seen. Um, and uh, follow that 2019, 2020 with Dolomite is my name. You never got to see that, right? No. Great film. One of my 30 best films really? I've ever seen. Craig Brewer would do Hustle and Flow. Not a big fan of that. Blake's Think Won't. Very strange movie. A um, couple other things. Coming to America, which apparently I like. The yeah. second one. Rudy Ray Moore. Was a party record guy. Yeah, he was he was an underground popular guy. He was a uh, MC. 
musician, singer, songwriter, comedian, always trying to make the big time, always trying to make the big time. And he had some cruelly made recordings, and then he tried to get some money, tried to make some records, and he did make records. He got to movie making. And the whole story of Rudy Ray Moore is out there. I mean, if anybody's interested, my, my friend, Mark Murray, wrote a book. But before the book was published, he wrote a treatise, and he sent it to these guys who turned his treatise into a screenplay. And Netflix decided, okay, we're going we're gonna to do this. So Eddie Murphy is playing Rudy Ray Moore, and it's, just, it's a quite terrific performance. Uh, a, little, a little weight gain, a bit of makeup, and uh, a low budget reflecting the kind of films they made in the <laughs> early 70s. And it was just amazing transformation. Probably one of the best things I've ever seen Eddie Murphy do. These moments of bittersweetness and uh, you don't see that often from a, an actor who's been on it for 20, 30, 40 years. Convey bittersweet moments, you know, and, uh, and failure. And uh, I, I, I like this movie so much. So it did the indie circuit and then it did major circuits and everybody was saying how great Eddie Murphy was. And he started getting accolades in the press. But the same thing that followed him with Dream Girls was like, well, it's Eddie Murphy, Saturday Night Live. I don't think we're going to really follow through on these nominations. And so he was nominated and won some awards up until some fuckers decided, well, he's black and he's Eddie Murphy. He's not going to get an award. He's not going to get nominated. So it's a huge, huge crushing blow. This is a terrific film if you like uh, black exploitation films of the uh, 70s and early 80s. It's, it's good to see how they came about. But if you want to see some good performances, hell, Wesley Snipes is in this, playing D. Ervil Martin, who was a, a real-life person. Yeah, he's his co-star. And also uh, Fred Williamson's co-star in Boss and a couple of other yes, films. Yes, yes, uh, Fred Williamson co-star in, in a couple of pictures. And, and who actually went up directing some of these yes. <laughs> Rudy Ray Moore movies. <laughs> totally disinterested, totally buzzed out mm-hmm. most of the time. This is a wonderful movie. I, I can't say anything bad about this picture. A lot of people show up in small parts. And the cast all around is just great. You haven't heard this from me too often, but this is a movie a lot of people haven't seen. And they should really see. Because it's, it's not only a film that, uh, as well as can be said, accurately reflects the uh, production of a, uh, exploit, a black exploitation film made in the 70s slash 80s, but what those filmmakers went through to make these kind of movies with little to no means. And and uh, that's, some of the shit is funny as hell, too. But it's not any Murphy-type funny. It's like, it's it's a totally different ballgame. And I, I, I just, I can't recommend this film enough, but Coming to America. Yes, Coming to America, which is actually his last film to date, Although, like we mentioned, he is working on Beverly Hills Cop Axel Foley, which would be Beverly Hills Cop 4. So he's also the writer again and the producer. It was a totally honest mistake that can happen to anyone whose best friend introduced him to a strange woman who drugged him and had sex with him. 
Surprisingly to everyone on Earth, after 23 years when he couldn't even make a watchable film and a literal three decades since his career took a major jump at a shark after Boomerang, Eddie reunites with the better part of the entire cast of the 1988 original for this unexpectedly amusing sequel that goes beyond nostalgia. I mean, they even include an in-person performance from Salt and Pepper in this one to be a decent comedy in its own right. James Earl Jones is dying and concerned about the kingdom's lack of a male heir to the throne following Eddie, particularly given a hostile tribe run by none other than Demolition Man Simon Phoenix himself, Wesley Snipes, and his attempt to take over through marriage to Eddie's daughter. But apparently his compatriot and handler, Arsenio Hall, arranged all those years ago when they were in New York and hadn't yet met Eddie's wife, Sherry Hadley, arranged for, of all people, beleaguered Leslie Jones of Supermarket Sweep, sadly probably best known for her being very publicly subjected to racist harassment and doxing by MAGA trolls after her performance in the much-derided all-female Ghostbusters remake to give Eddie a roofie and fuck him to this very end. The rest of the film revolves around Eddie and Arsenio returning to New York to seek out Jones and Eddie's bastard son, a dim bulb rapper type, who they have to bring back and groom to be a prince. Of course, Mama Jones and members of her rather crass family accompany him for cheap laughs. The kid ditches an arranged concert just like his daddy for a humble but pretty personal assistant he falls for. And all is well in Zambia or Zimbabwe or whatever they change it to if they don't get sued. No, it's not necessarily as amusing as the original if you were expecting that. But they not only bring back as many original cast members as possible, short of Samuel L. Jackson, who had a walk-on as a robber in the original, and it makes this a fairly direct continuity with its long-ago predecessor, but they bring in just enough new blood and side story to keep this one feeling oddly fresh. It's funny, it's warm-hearted, it has a nice message core, and it beats the expected sequelitis, not to mention remake letdown, but being what can almost be seen as a standalone film, inextricably related to, but capable of standing independently to the original, and that's no mean feat. I enjoyed the hell out of this one when it came out streaming mid-COVID, and it was just as fun revisiting it for the show. Obviously, you have a very different take, so what's your take? It's No, I agree. It's surprisingly well done. It's it's surprisingly... <laughs> yeah, coming to America, too. Who would have thought after how many years? Yeah, uh, 20-some-odd years, 25 years. You would even want to fucking watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Much less be interested in it, much less be invest, invested in it. And I have to say, it's well done. And a lot of that goes to Greg Brewer, director. A lot of it goes to Eddie, Yahweh, the producer, and uh, this huge cast of returning characters. I mean, this is something I said on the outset with you know, Eddie Murphy with his uh, Beverly Hills Cup 4, getting all the surviving, uh, living cast members back. Um, this is the thing with him. Uh, uh, very nice. It sparks much better than you think it would. I, I know. Who thinks about coming to America too? No. It does work really well. And it's very enjoyable. It's it's actually bittersweet at times. And it's, uh, it's like, hey, they actually invested this much time into the story. Kudos to these guys. You know, it's, that's what I thought. You know, I was like, hey, I'm invested in this. And it's got Wesley Snipes in it, buddy. Yes, that's right. <laughs> we're doing a show on him soon. Yeah, we're doing a show on him very soon. And um, I I just was... Uh, okay, Eddie plays a few different roles in this, which is a thing he does before. So does Arsenio Hall. What happened to that guy? But there are enough moments in this to make this worth... Hey. This was not bad at all. I enjoyed watching it. So uh, that's basically it. So 
Thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed a little drawing room chat on Eddie Murphy. Next week, we'll be talking Whoopi Goldberg. If you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician who'd like to join us on air, drop us a line at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1, and we're on Podbean, thirdicinema.podbean.com. We're on iTunes. Look us up under Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. Or if you're particular, it's ID 5534020044. We're also on Spotify. Again, look us up under Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. And Amazon, Amazon Podcast, same way. Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So anything else you want to close out with? No, no. We hope you enjoyed our Eddie Murphy show. Uh, I really like Eddie Murphy, so... Uh... I'm looking forward to that 48 hours part three. <laughs> and no, no, seriously though, no, he's he's a terrific. He's a likable guy. And he's he's a likable guy. He's a dynamo performer when he's on point. And uh, hey, everybody has on and off moments. And yeah, I'm looking forward to a Whoopi Goldberg show because there was a time when I thought Whoopi Goldberg. Mm. <laughs> and obviously Frank Langella beat me to that. Yes, Frank Langella, so, Ted Danson. There's a bunch of people that got involved with her. So there's yeah, something going on that you wouldn't expect. <laughs> I was like, damn, Frank. I thought Whoopi was kind of hot for a moment there. And, like, Frank Langella jumped on his shit. <laughs> Everybody's like, Frank Langella, Dracula. And he, exactly. was like, he was like, Whoopi Goldberg. I'm like, I don't fucking get it. But <laughs> but yeah. Frank Frank is supposedly like Frank Langella is probably like twelve plus, so I, I, you know, I'm like, okay, you know, that's a rumor. <laughs> yeah, just like John Holmes shit, right? Okay, we're not gonna talk about that. <laughs> yeah. All I know is I love them in Dracula. I saw it in theaters, and uh, I still think it's the best screen Dracula other than Lugosi's. So yeah. Did you really? Yeah, I still do. <sighs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Christopher Lee and all that. I'm but... having the aneurysm, man. <laughs> I love that film. I can say. Yeah, whatever happened to Kate Nelligan? Yes. Oh, God, she was hot in that thing. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for listening to Eddie Murphy. And we'll be back with Whoopi Goldberg. Yes. And soon to come, Wesley Snipes, closing out our uh, unofficial, uh, unplanned Black History Month. <laughs> All right. See you next time.
Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of new age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner, fellow seekers of truth, in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you, only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself. Discuss the beloved, the comedian, the 
career and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello. Hello. Oh, you sound good from this end. <laughs> All right, that's good. Oh, it's terrible about Donna Lucas. I, can't, I just yeah. read that. Yeah. I just saw that. I was like, oh, my God. And I, like I said to him, you know, I know that she was just pushing him so much to watch his health and to retire finally. And so I thought, okay, now they're going to have their retirement together and it'll be whatever. Jeez. You, you never know what the hell's going to happen in life. And unfortunately, it usually isn't good. <laughs> yeah, that's not the first. She's not the first person that might orbit our friends, uh, whether it's a wife or a husband or the person I actually know that went in in the past year for just a uh, routine surgery kind of thing or not even surgery. Just, you know, you know, like a test or, you know, like they, they do testing before they do things. Right. And I, I, you know, I don't know. I'm sure he'll follow up when he's ready to. Yeah, now, trust me, it's going to be a bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's rough. And yeah. but I'm sure that. Maybe she had some health issues, but then again, things happen. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's I've I won't say it was like a lot of friends of mine, but I do hear this a lot. You just go in for something relatively routine, like oh, they're gonna do a colonoscopy or they're gonna do a a stress test or whatever the hell. Not necessarily a stress test, but anything like that. Right, right. And then uh, oh yeah, you need a mammogram and bam, that's it. I'm like what the? You know, my father, you know, he died of. I don't want to get into that nonsense, but when he he was always terrified because one of the options they offer you right away is, oh, we can do surgery. He's like, no, nah, because every time they open somebody up, the, the damn stuff spreads right away and you're dead. He's like, uh, whatever we do, you know, we deal the chemo, the laser, anything's better than that. And it's really held up for, you know, however many years it's been, 20 some odd years. Every time I hear somebody's like, oh, yeah, they're going for surgery for some kind of cancer thing or something, they wind up fucking dead really soon afterwards. Whereas, you know, other things, sometimes they get a new lease on life and last, God knows, 10, 12 years. You don't really know what's going to happen, but surgery is always a bad thing. I don't know, just, maybe this country just all the doctors suck, which is very possible. <laughs> no, the health care, you know, when you go in, it's just that, again, maybe uh, she, she wasn't that well to begin with and mm. whatever she was in, maybe it was minor, but maybe she had an issue and, you know, I'm not quite sure of her age either. Was she, he just turned. Well, I know they get married back in the late 60s. So, you know, neither yeah. one of them is a spring chicken, but that's not the point. It's like, yeah. you know, they always like to use, especially insurance terms, like, oh, you know, you've got a pre-existing condition. Everything is a fucking pre-existing condition. Oh, yeah, now, everything Oh, is, you're yeah. depressed. That's a pre-existing mental health issue. Oh, look, you, uh, oh, you're overweight. Oh, that's a pre-existing health condition. Oh, look, you've got, you know, something stupid like your sugar's high. Oh, you've got a pre-existing condition. Everything to go and keep you out of this circuit and explain it away like oh well he had underlying heart conditions of course shit you fucked up you know really when i when i had my two separate hernia operations because of course one year right after the other one mm -hmm. the other one appeared on the other side you know it's in the abdominal area of the yeah. groin oh, man that was tough yeah. um recovery painful oh my god yeah that's surgery but they, you're fucking out of there mm -hmm. you know like my buddy like pick me up please <laughs> you know <laughs> And, they, you know, and they're like, are you kidding? I don't get to stay. You know, I oh, spit. Oh, yeah. And I'm spitting up blood the next morning. 
they pull the shit a lot. I hear that she happened to, to me as well when I got an outpatient thing a long time ago for mm-hmm. it's actually sinusitis that was kind of impacted there. It's gonna be a lot of problems. Basically, they boot your ass right up. They don't care how good or bad you're doing. It's just like you know the insurance only pays for whatever many days, and then fuck you. You're on your own. <laughs> yeah, the nurse from the operation called me the next morning. I'm like groggy. And, oh, just checking up. Uh, I said I don't think something's right. I'm, I'm spitting up a lot of blood. Oh well, you woke up during the operation. Then we sedated you again. So maybe it was the tube scratch your throat. I'm like, uh, nobody told me about that. Yeah. But the you, you know I was having some issues early 2000s. Early, yeah, early 2000s, I was having some things, and I went through, man, those stress tests can kill you. No joke. Oh, yeah. They push you. They push you on these stress tests. No, you'll have to go harder. I'm like, dude, <laughs> I'm going to drop dead on this treadmill. I don't even do this at the gym. That happened you to know? somebody in our building. He was overweight, and they told him, oh, you got to lose some weight. So he goes downstairs. They have a uh, you know, little gym. It's nothing great. You got a couple yeah. of, uh, like, one shitty Nautilus and a couple of uh, treadmills and such like that. And... He was down there on the treadmill, you know, because he lost a couple pounds, whatever, maybe 10, 15 pounds down, and he had a heart attack and died in our basement. I'm like, okay, I'm glad he, like, worked out. He might as well just kept eating fucking chips and whatever the hell he was doing. <laughs> well, they sent me for this test. Here's the point I wanted to get to. They sent me for this test, which is called the angiogram. Yeah. It's an outpatient test. Right. Okay, no, but I'm not sure. So it turned out that my uh, my good friend who I knew for about 30-plus years, his, his then- boyfriend before mm-hmm. he married this guy okay his then boyfriend was was the uh uh like the male nurse there okay i said ernie you're here and he said oh, yeah. so they said okay so let me tell you what this means we're gonna sedate you but you're gonna be awake what? okay <laughs> and we're gonna ins- we're gonna cut you by your your lower groin like here we go oh, again God. Yeah. We're going to insert this small tube into, I don't know, the artery or whatever. Okay. It's going to go into your heart. We're going to pump liquid in, into it, and we're going to watch on the screen as the liquid fills your heart. Wow. And we want to see with the colors how everything looks. You're going to feel a rush of warm liquid. So I'm like, um, okay. why the hell would you do something like that? Whatever, go ahead. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, so they give you a form to sign. Please note that this test may result in death. Yes. <laughs> I love those. Like, oh, yeah, we're liability waiver. Like, fuck you. Yeah. I, I said, <laughs> um, yeah, it's a standard form. Said, yeah, it says I might die. <laughs> you know, I signed it, you know, but I'm like, it says I might die. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like I had a bunch of friends that were into that Spartan stuff there, the Spartan runs where the hell they are. And a bunch of people, even some guys at my job, like, oh, yeah, you know, I lost a bunch of weight doing this, and, you know, I'm training for this thing, and it's so great, and you should do it, and all this kind of crap. And they actually had me half convinced, because there's a whole bunch of people that, oh, yeah, we're all going to do it together, you want to come, you know, whatever. And I'm like, you know what, I really don't like this liability waiver, because I saw it, and I'm like, you can fucking die with this, and it's like, tough shit. Like, no, I don't know if I want to do this, right? So Mm. I waited, and I was like, we'll see how they go, maybe next year I'll join them or something. (laughs) They came back, the one guy... (laughs) I don't remember the entire story, but I know that he shattered his uh, his femur or whatever the hell, uh-huh. and his leg was the bone was sticking out of his leg, and uh, and it was like near the end of the course too. It was like the very last jump or whatever the hell you have to do, and they had to haul him off because it's up in the middle of nowhere. So they had to like I guess helicopter. They had to bring some special people in to get him out of there, and he's laying in the hospital for weeks and he couldn't walk for I don't know how long. He's going around in that cast. I'm like. Yeah, that was worth it. I'm like, fuck that. I'm glad I didn't do it. Like, I ain't gonna sign one of those gravers. You crazy? 
Well, you know, the at the end of that story with the with the angiogram was she's like, Okay, we're done now. So how did they get this tube out, right? Mm-hmm. It's like on a I don't know, this big like imagine a big fishing rod, you know, the what do you that thing you crank, you know, with yeah. the line on it? Yeah. They crank it back out. While you're awake? <laughs> yeah, and you're like, Fuck <laughs> well, How do you feel? I didn't like that. Well, how was the test? Like somebody poured very warm water into my chest. And I got to ask you, kettle? you, you yeah. keep saying it's like from your groin. Did they actually make you do it through a catheter? Because now they love to pull that shit. No, no, they did. No, oh, not God, a catheter. That. No, no. <laughs> but no, they put it in, you know, then they, they suture you and stuff. Yeah. That is nasty. They pull it out like, we're done next. <laughs> No, man, no. I would never do that again. Like, I, I would go through all these other tests. They know? love to do this preventative medicine, and it always sounds so much worse. And from the stories I hear, it's so much worse than the fucking disease. You might as well just let it go. You know, once your time, it's your time. Fuck it. <laughs> other archaic things they used to do. I've since learned that for the, um, uh, you know, the one for the prostate, the um, the colonoscopy. Oh, yeah. Okay. There's a non-invasive way to do that. But a lot of these doctors are so old school, they don't want to go the new route. The new right. route is non-invasive. That I would do. See, if I had to do something like that, it's like, yeah, sure. As long as you don't have to go inside my fucking body, go ahead. Do whatever dumb radiation no, test you, you go do. You go into this cold room like a slab. Right. I've done it twice today. I probably, I'm overdue to do it again. But so they put you to sleep. <laughs> you know, those men, women are like there, and you wake up like you're supposed to wake up a half an hour later. But it depends on your body mass. They're going to give you a little extra. And so uh, uh, you wake up like an hour later. We're trying to wake you up, Mr. Paul. I'm like, huh? <laughs> I think you should stay in this bed for a little while longer. But you really have to get up and get moving. Yeah, you want me to get the fuck out? Right. Exactly. And they won't let you get out, but they, the demand is you have to have somebody pick you up. Okay. So you're screwing up somebody else's day. You yeah. Know? Right. You know, and uh, it's funny. My, my wife had it years ago, and she's like, I want to eat food. I want to eat lunch. You know, the strong Filipino, me, I want to go home and sleep. <laughs> because you got all that uh, stuff in your system. You know? Yeah, sure. It's like everything I hear is like a freaking horror story. And then uh, you hear personal stories. They're like... Wow, that sounded like it was a disaster. And like half the time they come out worse for wear for doing it. Like, you know what? The hell with the preventive part. Just, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I've got an acute thing. Deal with that. Otherwise, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, and there's stuff people don't share that they they share in, you know, in close messages and, and. yeah, it's been a tough. It's been a tough year for some of my friends and family, you know, families of some of them, and uh, we already got COVID to deal with, you know. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know the people that are into this preventative stuff, they didn't even bother going to their doctors for what two years because of that. So things happen. Well, yeah, that's that. And you know, excuse me, I have some pain. I'm not fucking kidding, would you? Sure. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that's what that sigh was. I, I went food shopping uh, Saturday afternoon after my normal chores. I had, I'm overdue. I haven't gone in over a month. And I'm looking at frozen iced hamburgers in the freezer. Like, they've been there for a long time. I need some new stuff. And, yeah. And, you know, nobody has bags anymore. It's the new uh-huh. rule. Yep. So I, I came with all my bags, and I realized I didn't have enough. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I put all this stuff in there. So, oh, my God, this shit is so heavy. Mm-hmm. You know, I took an Uber back home from the place. And At least you did that. I was afraid you were walking Yeah, the hand. guy actually <laughs> said, this is this is really heavy because he helped put it in his trunk. And 
let me take it to your, you know, I gave him an extra tip. You know, yeah. he said, let me, let me help you to the gate of your house. I'm like, oh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> I still had to carry it up the stairs. You offered to do that for me, but I felt like, oh, man, no, I'm, yeah. I'm up. But wow. next day, like, my arm, my left arm, it's like on the outside of it. Yeah. It's like I strained something. Oh, Lower back is like, ay, ay, ay. <laughs> Wow. That's part of it is aging, but part of it is, you know, a lot of us were sedentary for two years. Yeah, sure. Because of COVID. Mm-hmm. At its height, people were dying all around us yep. before they had shots. Mm-hmm. And, and fearless fucking leader, that fat fuck, didn't <laughs> want to do anything about releasing his shots until the numbers started to rise out mm-hmm. of control. Yep. You remember this? Well, yeah, because he was act- he knew about it. He admitted it. If he sees stuff that he didn't print or whatever, but yeah. he didn't want to let anybody know because it looked bad for the Republicans. Like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, and, and then and then God knows what they gave him. He's out and about in two days. And oh like, yeah. What did they give you? Yeah, he <laughs> you really know. got some heavy duty drugs from what they said. <laughs> yeah, stuff we'll we'll never see. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you were right though. You were right. For like two years, people didn't go to the doctor because of COVID. It's still hard to see a physician mm-hmm. i wanted to do a routine blood work okay it's overdue because of covid you know yeah. right mm-hmm. and the nearest appointment can get is in january whoa yeah and stuff like that happened to my wife she had to do something simple you know just blood work for a certain thing but it was nothing serious it's just like something she had never did before like she didn't get immunized when she was a kid so she got the appointment with the doctor not too bad it was like you know a week and a half two weeks ahead but the actual blood test like well you know i don't know if his people that he works with or just in general, like they don't really test for this stuff very often, so uh, it, it might take a bit. So usually, when you do one of those things for a blood test, like I had to do a blood test during the year for something else, and you know, within a couple of days, maybe a week, he gives you a call back. Oh, everything's good. You know, you're doing great. Keep it up. Well, he goes, and two, three, four weeks later, and like, what the, did I get any, get any results yet? It's like, oh, not yet. Finally got the results, and everything was fine. But you know, geez, that long for one friggin' blood test after you already took the test, mine, just to have them process it? Like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think with this thing, I didn't even book it. I just got deflated, and, you know, like, why am I booking something for January 2023? <laughs> <laughs> book a diet. Exactly like, right. So. But I know when I go, it's, it's already mid-October, and I know when I go to book this in November, it'll be like March. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's true. Anyway, uh, test this and yep. let me know what you think. And, okay. Uh, hopefully we get rocking. All right. What's your take? Dead silence. Hello. I guess you want to make a drink. Hello. I lost track. What movie were you hating on? Okay. It was Tower Heist. I'll just repeat it for you. I said, no, no, I heard, I heard every word okay. you said. So, go ahead. Welcome to Skype call testing service. After the beep, please record a message. Afterwards, your message will be played back to you. Hello, welcome to Skype call testing service. After the beep, 